Hi, everybody, and welcome to Totally Tintin. I'm Ian Boothby. And I'm David Dedrick. Uh, this is your first episode. Here's how the show works. I work as a professional comic book uh, writer, and I've been a comic book fan all my life, yet I've never read the Tintin series of books. Uh, my friend David, on the other hand... I'm a longtime fan of Hergé. I've read all the books many, many times. Yeah. And uh, I have to say that... He's one of my major influences as a as an artist, for sure. So uh, Dave has tried to get me to read these books many times over the years. <laughs> and uh, to force me to do it, we're now doing this podcast. That's right. Uh, so we're going over every one of uh, Tintin's, uh, the Tintin books. Uh, I'm experiencing them for the first time. Dave is giving you the veteran perspective. And we'll be going over the books page by page. So if you haven't read them yet, uh, there will be spoilers. Yes. Uh, if you have read them and have them with you, go along with us page by page if you want. Or just imagine it in your heads. However, you, there's no wrong way to listen to this podcast unless it's underwater, because you're probably listening in an electronic device, and that would be dangerous. That would, the only way, uh, don't listen to also, it. Also, no air. No air. Besides the electronic part of it, the fact that you're underwater and there's no oxygen available. That's true. That's also wrong. Okay, fair enough. All right. You're not good. a fish. You're not a fish. Okay, good advice all the way around. So, the book we're going to be looking at today is The Shooting Star. Yes. Now, is there anything you want to say about the book before we start uh, diving in? Well, first thing, I don't like that title. You uh, don't like the title of The Shooting Star? No. In the, the original French title is mm-hmm. La Toile Mysterieuse, The Mysterious Star, which I think is actually a better title. Oh, I would than agree The with Shooting that, Star. Yeah. I think, that, you know, if they wanted to give it like a, that kind of uh, sibilant, you know, S repeating the, the sinister star or something like that, you know, to give it that sense of, but I like The Mysterious Star because it gives a sense of what is it? You know, there's a real uh, kind of a gloomy, doomy kind of feeling to, to the, especially to the beginning of this book. And I think the shooting star kind of, I don't know, doesn't really give you that, the flavor of what Hergé right. was saying. Also, they don't care about alliterative uh, titles in Tintin. No. There's no, there's none no. of that. No. Um, no, I guess one of the things that was confusing for me is, you know, it's the shooting star and we're looking at a picture of, you know, it looks like something odd. I don't yeah. know what it is. Yeah. It doesn't look like a star to me though. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a little confusing thing on the cover there. That's us. That's me being picky. <laughs> well, it is kind of evocative, though. You know, it is mysterious. So if you so it would it, work for the mysterious star. Yeah, I think because then you'd be re- looking at him, you go, "Well, that's an odd. Why is there a giant mushroom on the cover of this?" Yeah. Uh, I think even as a child, I knew it was a giant mushroom. I don't think I thought it was anything else. I'm not very Freudian, though, so I didn't. <laughs> okay, good. Mix it that way. Yeah, let's keep it that way. <laughs> All right. Now, is, but, uh, is there anything you want to say about uh, when this uh, story uh, came out? Sure. Well, we can talk a little bit about that. Um, so uh, this was once again. This was published in Le Soir, Le Soir Volé, the the Nazi-controlled newspaper that Hergé had had agreed to work for. And by this point, uh, you know, Le Soir Jeunesse, the the kind of the idea of copying Le Petit Vingtième in this other newspaper and a much larger circulation newspaper um, had gone by the wayside just because of paper shortages just didn't allow for them to have this extra supplement. And it wasn't that much of a supplement. It was basically a newspaper sized piece of paper folded and folded into, well, how would you fold it? Once, twice, eight times so that you had kind of like a little fold out, uh, you know, so it, you know what I mean, you right? Mean, yeah. Yeah. Could you, it was folded down quite a bit. Could you well. fold something eight times? I uh, thought that was beyond... A, a newspaper? Yeah. I don't know if you can fold something eight times. Is that right? It's impossible? Yeah. I think it might be. It's like tearing a phone book in half? I, well, no. There are strong men can do that. <laughs> but I'm not sure. There's a certain amount where, yeah, you can't... I meant me tearing a phone book in half? Sure. There. I'll give you that. Um, once again, phone books don't really exist anymore, you know. So, or maybe by the time you're listening, they've mm-hmm. come back into style. 
There you go. <laughs> Maybe artesian phone books are, are coming out. Artisanal phone books. Artisanal. There you go. Not artesian. What? You get it out of a well? <laughs> Guys, I'm really sorry how this show has started so far. We will get our act together and quick. <laughs> and so, uh, so now, so instead of being like a weekly two-page strip like he had, you know, he had done for many years with in Le Petit Vantiem, uh, he was now doing it as a daily strip. And so it's interesting with with the sh- with the let's call it the shooting star. I don't like the title, but we'll call it. Yeah. With the shooting star um, was that he began it the day after he finished the crab with the golden claws. Like so, unlike before with with a petit van Tiam, he might take like a couple week break before right. he would start up the next story, and maybe give himself a breather or you know just as sort of a teaser. And there might be like yeah. an interview with Tintin in the next issue to kind of tease up the next story, and then they would the next story would happen right. And so I would. And, but this was different. Now he's working in, basically he's working in like American comic strips kind of version of, of writing. And so, you know, he's kind of adapted almost like a Captain Easy kind of a style of, uh, you know, adventure comics yeah. with a humor, with humor. Because he's doing a yeah, daily strip now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so, you know, finish the crab with the golden claws this day. And the next day you're on to uh, the shooting star. And so it ran from uh, October 20th, 1941 to May 21st, 1942. And uh, once it was finished, it, uh, you know, it was basically collected into a book form. But this was the first book that was uh, written and drawn with the intention that it would be a full-color album when it was done. Okay. So there was no intermediary step where it was print, uh, printed first as a black and white book, and then later on was recolored, and some parts of it were redrawn for for color. So now it was still redrawn for publication because the comic strip itself was not like the daily strip was not big enough to have all the information in the drawings that Hergé wanted often. So what he would do is um, when he was when it was being published, he would cut out the strip and he would cut it up and he would paste it in a notebook and to to figure out this new format because he was given like a four tier format on a slightly on a larger size paper which was good so he could still fit a lot of information on we've kind of talked about it before that it's basically was two pages of what was in the petit vantiem onto one page of what became the color albums and so he would uh, cut out the pages you know or the, the the dailies as they came out he would just cut them up and paste them in this book so he could figure out the format of this new style okay and so if you look at the very first page you'll see right away that there's no way that this that it wasn't changed because if you look at the size of the of the panels, the third tier is much larger. It's higher than than the other two two tiers. So if we, two tiers. So if you accept that those two are like as they were in the in the you mean the newspaper, sec- the second tier is bigger. Oh, I'm sorry. I just count the uh, title as also a tier. So okay. yeah. So yeah. That's let's say let's say there's three tiers of drawing. So the second the middle tier the second tier is is taller. So he would have redrawn it. And one way you can tell that is because the the word balloons which. Yeah. And Hergé are always at the top of the panel or are about a centimeter and a half down from the right. top of the panel. So he resized these ones. And that often happened. And even if you look inside, there's places where if you can find online, there's pictures of, uh, some of the old Le Soir, uh, this Le Soir, um, as it looked in Le Soir. And some of them you look at, if you look at them in the book, they're slightly different. He's moved. He's moved one panel down, you know, to make it fit differently. He's maybe added a panel in because, once again, if you go to page, uh, just turn the page to page three, there's a full page, you know, full page or full half page drawing of a telescope in, in the observatory. Once again, that couldn't have run that way in, in the newspaper. So either that was a single panel 
that he expanded into that large panel, or it wasn't in the in, in at all, and he just right. and he just filled in a bit of information to make to make up the, make and the book looking a bit longer. At, looking at the next panel uh, or on the next page, yeah, there is that same telescope, so you know it would be reasonable that would be the next strip. Yeah, it's possible. It's it just possible. it's just a nice uh, thing to just uh, make you take a little breath and go. Sure. Mm. Well, you get the sense of the hugeness of this place and the fact that it's so empty. Right. And so we're having this that that feeling of it. So, um. Sorry, just lose something there. So now, what's interesting about this book uh, is that, to me, is interesting about this book is that it's very similar to a Jules Verne book that's called *The Chase of the Golden Meteor*, which came out in 1908. And in that book, there is a meteorite that comes to Earth, and there's an expedition to the North Atlantic to find a meteorite containing an unknown element. So very similar like that in that way. There's two competing uh, teams, one led by an eccentric professor and the other by a, a Jewish banker. And they both had an academic from the University of Jena called Dr. Schutze, the same name mm. that's in, in, in the group of, of, of the uh, experts who are coming along in this, scientists who are coming on this journey expedition. There's also Professor Schutze from Jena, un, the University of Jena. So it's interesting. Would you call it a tribute then? Or would you I don't know if it's it... a tribute. I don't know if it's... He, Hergé himself said he never read that book, that he only read one... Jules Verne book in his entire life. Uh, so that's possible. It's possible that he was influenced yet a friend named Jock uh, Van Melkebeke, who he did uh, that play with that we talked about last time. Um, now, it's possible that he, he was a big fan of the genre, so he may have known it and may mm-hmm. have suggested to Hergé. That when Hergé started talking about this idea, he gave some of the elements that he remembered from that book as possible story elements for Hergé to use. It's hard to know exactly. So I think if you read the Jules Verne, it's not, I mean, it has elements that are similar, but in other ways, it's really dissimilar. Part of why Hergé wanted to do the story is because he want, and the way he planned it was he wanted to have, uh, he wanted to have the, you know, the ocean involved. He wanted to have a sea voyage because he wanted Captain Haddock to return. Mm-hmm. He really enjoyed Captain Haddock in the first book that he had him in. And so he just was looking for any way to, to bring him back into the story. So that's partly why the story has the, the naval expedition. And, uh, so, you know, he just, you know, he's looking for that. He's looking for that. And I think possibly, uh, the fact that he had one day in between finishing one story mm. and starting another may also have influenced that. You don't know. He may have heard that story from someone and just copied elements un- unwittingly. He says he didn't know. He never he- heard of it. And, uh, it's hard to say. Like, you know, okay, let's, if we take him at, at his word, then it's just one of those weird things where, you know, there's a certain kind of... Did that happen in any future stories or in any past stories? Well, we'll find out. Ah, I see. Well, no, we'll... Not in past not, stories. Let's not find out about the, yeah, the past stories you can tell. I mean, in terms of past stories, there was a, there was a children's book that was, came about the turn of the century that had a character in it whose name was Tintin. His actual name was Augustine in the stories, but his nickname was Tintin. He was, he was a little goblin or like a little gremlin sort of a character. Mm-hmm. Now that may have, influenced him but once again he claims to never have heard of it he didn't actually someone told about it in like in the night late like early 70s someone sent him a copy of right. the book and he said i've never seen this book before but now, it's interesting now so. I've, I've never asked you this but uh just the name tintin does that mean anything no it's just a nonsense name kind of like totor he decided that they were very uh easy to remember names he liked the repeating he thought having a repeating name like that made it easy to remember and mm. would and that like his whole like like when we talked about him designing the character, he was looking for a character that had a distinctive silhouette and he wanted a distinctive name. He wanted it to be memorable. Like he, you know, he was angling for this to be popular. Yeah. He was never drawing it in for, for fun 
I mean, he drew, he drew it because he liked it, but also he wanted to make money from it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were there were elements of it where he was angling to make it more more acceptable to people. Nice. And I'm glad that there's water in this because I know that you love how Hergé draws water. Well, come to a panel. It's one of my favorite or a sequence that's one of my favorite of Hergé. Of okay, cool. And yeah. the, I put up a, a panel that I liked uh, today online mm -hmm. and you mentioned that was also one of your favorites. I love that panel as well. All right. So I think we can just go into the story. We Sounds can good. talk a little bit about uh, some of the things that influenced it as, as it went. The, the one thing about, I'll just say one more thing about Lesoir before we sure. go on this. Because, because so... Because we were talking about uh, Lesoir, and like I said, this is the first book that uh, was going to be colored. So he finally agreed with uh, Casterman that he should color the books. And mostly the reason he did that was because he was afraid of losing ground in France, where color albums were the mm -hmm. thing. And so he he started, you know, to think, well, maybe uh, I should do this because I don't want to lose momentum. And that was always a fear for him was the idea that, you know, we talked about it last time where... You know, he had this four months break from when Le Petit Vantiem went under before he started at Le Soir. And what's happening to, to the momentum? What's happening to Tintin? People are going to forget about him. By the time I start this next story, you know, he's all worried about that. I and mean, it's not likely, but of course, but when you're, when you're a working person and you're constantly working every yeah. day and suddenly you're not, it's nerve wracking. And so, so when he agreed with Casterman, then they set the 62 page limit. And that 62 page limit was once again, totally arbitrary, just based on the fact that there was no paper. Yeah. And so, like, when The Crab with the Golden Claws came out, Hergé several times had to go and visit the uh, propaganda Abteilung, the German, uh, the Germans who, the, the German uh, department that controlled the use of paper. Uh, publishing and stuff like yeah. that and paper. And so he, and he had to go and plead for paper for uh, himself, like, to publish the books. I had a friend who told me that he had to do uh, ads for them in exchange for papers. Is that, is that correct? I never read that. So okay. I never read that. Then we, I'll follow up on that information and get back to yeah, we'll have it. Yeah. Um, Just some of the things he had to trade, trade for paper. To whom? To, to the Germans? To, to, yeah, to the Germans. for pay Like, he ended oh. up... There's some ads, apparently, that he did mm -hmm. uh, f uh, for, you know, things. Uh, and uh, that was, and the reason was because he basically had to beg for paper. Every okay, time. yeah. Because, well, yeah, he went in and asked for 30... Uh, he wanted, like, 30,000 or 30 tons of paper or whatever. But really, he just wanted 12 tons. But, you know, he was asking for way yeah. more so that he would get, you know, that, the, the classic angle. Um and so when when Casterman suggested this to him, and like he was already kind of worried about what was happening with Lesoir, because his fear was like before he was working in these two-page spreads, and so his pacing was very easy and very natural because you were looking at it as a comic book. You know, it was it was already in the, in the form that you were publishing it mm -hmm. in. Whereas Lesoir, suddenly everything is by day by day, and he started worrying about how that the narrative would get too choppy. You know, because he would have this need to, um, you know, so you have you know you need to have the rhythm. Placement of gags, you know, build suspense, and then you also have to end with a panel that that uh, kind of points to what's going to happen the next day, and then you also want your readers to keep wanting to read it. So you have all these things that you're trying to juggle at one time. Before he only had to worry about that near the end of two pages. Now every day he has to think about that. So yeah. he was worried about how it would read in in the stories. But I think if you read the Shooting Star, you'll agree that actually it reads really well. Yeah, really like close. Like really the last well. book was jarring. Because again, they had the giant splash pages throughout because mm -hmm. everything was changing. And, yeah, and so yeah. and so you never get us uh, a consistent rhythm. Yeah, but this one just clips along. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And so, because at this time his sales were like higher than they'd ever been, like he was beating all his past, previous sales records when the crowd with the golden claws came out. It sold out. It sold out of its first print run, and uh, you know, so it was partly 
he stopped political satire. And apparently what people really wanted from him was funny character comedy, you know, with an adventure element to it. And so, you know, for, fortunately for him, he was in a position now where that was what all he could give them. Yeah. Because, uh... It's really weird to say, fortunately, while in Nazi times, yes. he was... Yeah. <laughs> but for him, for, you know, for his popularity or for to realize this, you know, because he was coming out of Le Petit Vantiem, where he was in this very political newspaper mm-hmm. that had this very fixed, you know, some might call it fascist, but let's just say far-right ideology that he was parroting that, you know, that kind of, inf- kind of infected or infiltrated, sept- you know, crept into his, his stories... Right. Uh, you know, whether intentionally or inadvertently, you know, that kind of, that sort of, um, the milieu, you know, that you're in kind of affects how, what you're doing, you know, whether you want to please people or you just hear them talking and it kind of comes part of what you do. And I think we can see that in the shooting star as well. We can see his new kind of situation starts to affect what he's, what he's doing. That said, this book is incredibly, uh, timely and topical for what he was going through at that time. Oh, okay. So, you know, I think this book is, a, you know, of any of his books, to reflect what he was living through, this is one of the first ones to All do right. that. And we'll go you know. through that as we go through that? Yeah, let's talk about it. All right. Let's start off with page one. If you got a book in front of you, uh, you can do the same. Uh, so we're going to start off with just a, a nice little gag. It's a nice uh, evening. Uh, Tintin and Snowy are uh, going for a walk, but it's very hot. Hotter than you'd expect, apparently. Yes. Um, and uh, Snowy, being the old scold that he is, <laughs> is, uh, is chastising uh, Tintin for not looking where he's going. And the first gag out of the gate, uh, Snowy walks into a pole. Classic. And the the uh, Hergé colorful stars burst out. <laughs> you know, in North America, all the stars are the same color. Mm-hmm. But uh, in Hergé's world, multiple colored stars. Stars? Sometimes they're bells. Yeah. Sometimes they're candles. Yeah. Tintin's looking at stars in the sky. Snowy has got stars, stars around his head. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Tintin notices the stars aren't quite right. There's one star too many in the Great Bear. Yeah, uh, this uh, startles Snowy a little bit because you know he's a little scared of bears, uh, but they kind of walk it off. All right, that's an unusual thing, but let's just uh, keep going. What's the big deal? Says Snowy. Here you go. I know he calls it the Great Bear. It just looks like the Big Dipper to me. It is does it, look like the Big Dipper. Is it part of the? Is it part of the uh, Ursa Major? Is that uh, is the Big Dipper part of that? This is an excellent question that we people have... listening <laughs> know the us. answer to. <laughs> Unfortunately, we're in the past. Yeah. Even though you're yelling at your podcast right now, <laughs> obviously it is. But yeah, it definitely looks like the Big Dipper. <laughs> Sorry, folks. I'm not a not an astronomy buff. So Tintin, not one to see a star and not follow up on it, uh, decides to call the observatory. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, uh, the sirens just incorporate them into the story and the sense of menace that's going on in <laughs> yes. the story. Just think, you know, work them in. We do this uh, show in the middle of the highway. We're very sorry about that. Yes, unfortunately, so, it's a, sum- a very summery day here. Mm-hmm. That means car accidents. So we are really hot right now while recording this. Mm-hmm. So we are reading this in Sensorama. <laughs> we've got the alarms, we've got the heat, we've got everything going on. I'd advise you guys uh, listening and reading at home, uh, please turn up the heat uh, in your home uh, to get the full effect. So, um, you know, uh, they're very snarky at the observatory when Tintin's calling them up, not wanting anything to do with them. Uh and uh, Tintin does not care for this very much, looks out the window, notices the stars getting bigger. Yeah. And off to the observatory he goes. Yes. Uh, what, uh, well, I, what I like about this, the, the whole scenario here is I, I do, I feel like he's, I feel like, well, to me, this book is kind of about living in occupied, occupied time, living under occupation. You know, there's, the streets are empty. Mm-hmm. It's almost all the scenes we see at this point in the story are all at night. And there's this kind of grayness to them all. 
that reflects this sort of feeling of of the sort of somber mood and uh but then what's also great is just what's great about Hergé is that he can mix seriousness adventure and then humor so you have this you know fear of what this the star means it's getting bigger we can all see it goes to the observatory and then the first thing that happens is he meets the crabbiest man in the world at the door as if he's trying to get into uh, the emerald city yeah he's you know, very much the emerald city there ain't yeah. no wizard and there never yeah. was slam. slam yeah and then and then he does a great little gag where he uh, i guess he te- says this, the building's on fire yeah lures this uh, watchman out and then he goes in and closes the door and then he goes into this place it's it's quite empty he goes into this observatory Meets a kook. Meets meets a kook. And you know the guy's a kook. Uh, one, because he's saying that there's a judgment. Oh, whoa. Yeah. But you know he's a kook because he's got a crooked walking stick. <laughs> and in cartoons, if you've got a crooked walking stick, you're nuts. Yeah. Well, his hat also kind of gives him away as well. Yeah. He's very old-fashioned looking. And so that's another thing that, that tells people that you are, uh, you're odd. Yeah. He looks like he's just stepped off the set of uh, Little Abner. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he looks kind of like, does look like... Papi actually. So uh, Tintin goes up to the observatory, knocks on the door, and then we get a beautiful shot of the uh, telescope. Yes, uh, done in that. This is, I kind of think this is like, a, well, I guess we talked about it with the crab. This, the kind of, this is, the, I guess the crab with the golden claws would be a transitional book. This would be the true kind of pre-war, or I mean, the true wartime era for Hergé, his second sort of era, you know, and so we're seeing. His kind of his his finished art is getting to the point now where it's it looks as good as his later art. Yeah. You know, there's still a, because of the size it was being printed that he was doing it at, the lines aren't quite where they will be later on. Yeah, there's some surprising panels in the next page. There's a surprising panel to me where you know normally you see Tintin at certain sizes. Yeah, and in this one you see yeah. him very tiny and you yeah. see his face very large. Yeah, which we haven't seen in previous books. Yeah, well, there's. Yeah, well, we can talk about that when we come to it. So Tintin... But in this case, we see Tintin very small in the background. Yeah. On page, top of page four. Th- that's right. So he's walking towards him. He finds this professor and uh, his assistant, and they're sitting there. His assistant is, is you know, trying to figure out... He's obviously working out sums. He has sums swirling around his head. It's a nice effect. <laughs> and then... So Tintin decides he's going to go look at the telescope. So he walks up the steps. The telescope looks inside, and he sees a giant spider uh, kind of... Lit up from by, lit up by this star. By the star, yeah. Yeah, and so it's great. So he runs back down, and he, you know, he says, uh, "Well, this is horrible. This is horrible." And and the professor, of course, not knowing what he's talking about, he says, "Well, in a sense, yes, it's horrible, and it's enormous, enormous, yeah, quite large." And then its legs are its furry legs. I don't know, hairy legs, I guess. It's I'm reading in French. Yeah. So I'm trying to paraphrase. It's making me it. shiver to think of them. Yeah, Le- legs. What legs are you talking about? <laughs> uh, the ones that belong to the giant spider. Spider is. Well, is that a, your idea of a joke? Basically, he's doing a little uh, Abbott and Costello thing here. You know, meh, meh, meh. and then uh, <laughs> the guy is just not paying attention. Yeah. Uh, he goes uh, checks checks it out. Yep, it's a spider, all right. Uh, extraordinary, creepy, whatever. And as we all probably see coming down the road, yeah, it's just a spider on the uh, on the lens. On the lens, which actually would not actually work. Not at all. Not in the slightest. Because the telescope would not be focused to see the spider. Right. It would be focused to see the star, and the spider would be as like dust, a moat on the lens. But... And a joke explained is a joke destroyed. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. So you're all welcome. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. And uh, Snowy enjoys this, that uh, the guys were so scared of this little spider. Uh, then, of course, the spider itself spooks Snowy. That little coward. <laughs> yeah, it's you're really getting the uh, joke, st- joke strip slash adventure strip, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, out of this. So up, up, uh, Tintin goes to take another look. Takes a look at the star. 
That looks like a huge ball of fire, and uh, he is told it is a ball of fire, <laughs> an enormous ball of fire. Now, what's cu- what's curious about this sto- what curious about this book is that we're kind of used to Hergé uh, being, you know, kind of semi-realistic in his stories. He mm-hmm. takes time to do research after the Blue Lotus. He's, you know, he knows what he's talking about. He, you know, he's. Well, come later, he'll be like, you know, uh, he'll do research to the nth degree. He'll spend four years researching before he even puts pencil to paper. This book has absolutely nothing to do with reality. You mm-hmm. know, there's absolutely no way a star entering our, our solar system could just enter our solar system. No, once uh, it enters our solar system, we're dead. Yeah, we're dead. Yeah, exactly. And not only are we dead then, we were dead 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And, uh, and the fact that it crashes into the sea and doesn't cause... Earth-destroying tsunamis, you know. Uh, there's a lot of problems with with it, but it it fits what Hergé was trying to do in this story. I think is, I to me, and uh, this is what uh, this writer named Harry Thompson felt was that that uh, Hergé was making a comment about the war, and he was saying is the comet is the war, the star is the war. It's something we're very concerned about. This thing, it's coming, this coming cataclysm that's going to destroy us all. But once it happens, it's not as bad as we thought. And we'll get through it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we'll f- discover that uh, we can, you know, live through this. And then as, I'll, we'll talk about it as we get to the next stage in the story. But that's where I think he was at this point, where he's kind of, it's sort of symbolic. Because there's a very... Heightened- well, you were saying, interestingly before, like, uh, you know, he learned that people didn't like political satire, yeah. so he ditched it. But you're saying, it seems like you're saying, yeah. this is political, though. Exactly. So what's interesting is, with Crab with the Golden Claws, where he gave, totally gave up on the political, this one, but it's not political in the sense, it's more a personal comment on war. Well, political not, becomes personal when yeah. your country is taken over. Yeah, and so it's not something that you would see necessarily. He's not being, he's not just talking like he's not using two countries to represent Germany and, and uh, you know, and say Yugoslavia or whatever, he's, he's, you know, making this sort of very general, uh, and, you know, sort of analogy, this sort of metaphor of, yeah. of war that you can either read as a face value. It's a, it's a mysterious star that's somehow come into our solar system without destroying us all and is heating up the earth and it's going to crash, part of it's going to crash into the ocean. Or you can take it as this, you know, metaphor of cataclysm, of destruction, and then of healing and rebirth. Okay. You know, and so it's uh it's an interesting way to yeah. look at it, I think. I'd like to uh, I want to know later on what giant spiders symbolize. But um <laughs> but you know, well, I think what the giant spider is was part of the like to me this book is I was going to call it the Mulholland Drive of uh of Tintin stories. Based on the movie. Based on the movie. Yeah, cuz it has this very dreamlike element to it and there's parts of it where there's things that are creepy that mm, give it, it a creepy it, element. Yeah. It's kind of like the guy behind the dumpster. Like when you watch Mulholland, in Mulholland Drive by David Lynch. When you yeah. watch Mulholland, David David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, there's a scene. The movie starts with a lot of very happy-go-lucky, very happy scenes, mm-hmm. and that you feel very, oh, this is kind of fun As and interesting. As Lynch often does. Yeah, and then there's a scene where these two guys are talking in a in a restaurant about this man who lives behind a dumpster. This guy's had dreams about, and when he sees him in his dream, he'll have a heart attack. And in the film, you see the man behind the dumpster, and once you see him, the whole tone of the movie changes. So every scene after that scene with the man behind the dumpster, everything takes on a creepy or sinister aspect. So things that you were seeing before where it seemed very happy and yeah. joyful, the same scenes, if you hadn't put that scene in, they seem now they seem sinister and weird. And it's kind of what Hergé is doing here as well, where like the giant spider, why is it there? Well, it gives a creepiness 
to what we're seeing that adds a sinister element or a creepy element to to what's happening. Well, it's also nice because you have stuff like in like the Black Island yeah. where there's a monster and you get mm-hmm. told the monster. And then when you see what the monster is, it's it's good. It's a good monster. Yeah. But you haven't set up the monster in a way yeah. that when you get like, oh, when you get to it, oh, there it is. Yeah. Like since the beginning, we've been expecting that. Sure. And yeah. so that gives a sense of foreboding and and it's, it's part of this height. Like to me, it's a very heightened emotional story. Like there's a lot of surreal elements to it as well as we proceed to the opening part of it we'll see all kinds of weird things happening and then also on this page itself as we as they're describing the star and its effects the professor tells Tintin that it will collide with the earth and it will be the end of the end of the earth and it's and the panel that he says that in yeah is it is it, it's a panel unlike any we've seen in Tintin we've before. never seen this kind of close-up before never Tintin. yeah and the and the professor seems to be to me at least looking at us yeah <laughs> You know, he looks. He starts off looking a bit at Tintin. Yeah. Then he's then he's looking at us. Now he's yeah. really looking at us, and it's the closest we've ever seen Tintin. Yeah. And Tintin has never looked that scared before. No, that's what I mean. Like, so yeah. we get this heightened emotionalism that, you know, this weird panel that you've never never experienced before. Well, beyond beyond, yeah. If I could go a little farther with that, and and without getting too into what happens, I'd say something that uh, the, the, they keep coming back to in this story is dealing with hopelessness. Racing to something like sure. uh, give up. Yeah, now it's time yeah. to. Well, That's a good point. I didn't up. think of that, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. And then they 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 keep going and they keep going and they keep going past all. So Everyone's ki- got their moment of despair, sure. and that kind of fits into that kind of general idea of what you know what you're feeling right now in in Belgium under living under German occupation. You know this depression. You know everything you're doing is controlled by people that you know are alien to you. Yeah. You know, and so, but you know, don't lose hope. Because eventually we'll come out the other side of this, you yep. know. And it's very much like his king said, King Leopold III, you know, we'll live through this. We've gone through it before and we will survive. And so Hergé writes a story that uh, once again takes neutrality to the nth degree and also carries that message of the king. Yeah. Cool. All right, moving on to page six. Uh, we now have a deadline. Uh the uh, collision with the Earth is going to take place tomorrow at uh, 8.12 uh, hours and 30 seconds precisely. Uh, Tintin still can't believe it. He gets uh, all the uh, math thrown at him. He's <laughs> like, no, I'm sure they're all correct. Uh, and, uh, and and off he goes. We see a couple uh, pointing up there, noticing the star. I just want to point out what a waste of paper these guys and their math formula. They have like three formula per page. What does it, what's biggest, it matter if they're wasting the it when the world's going to end tomorrow? What are you saving the paper don't for? Don't be so hopeless. It's all going to burn up, <laughs> according to these guys. Now, here's where I feel a little bit sad. It's like I see this. This uh, It seems like a nice couple. They've taken yeah. off their coats because sure, it's hot. hot. Yeah. They're looking up at the sky. Tindon knows it's the end of the world. They don't yeah. know this yet. Yeah. Uh, they go for a little bit of a walk, and immediately Snowy looks back and is running. Uh, he sees something, and what the heck is it? Uh, Tintin jumps up, and just in time, he grabs onto a lamppost, and uh, just dozens, oh, millions of rats, he says, coming up from the sewers, absolutely panic-stricken. Well, there's no way those that couple wasn't swarmed by those rats. They are not near a lamppost. They are not as young as Tintin. They did not spot those rats. Uh, that, cu- that couple is covered in rats right well, now. They're only saving... Grace would be that they are standing in an intersection, so they can move out of the way of the stream if they're streaming down that one road. So okay, you think the rats just picked one street to go down? Well, yeah, I think they were following each other. They're not going to, you know, or maybe one or two might branch off, but not a whole okay. lot. And then a little scary thing where you think Snowy might have been uh, taken away by the rats. 
Yeah, once again, this surreal sense. I mean, it's weird. Him it hanging on a lamppost very, with a bunch of rats running by Yeah, it's him. very, it is very nightmarish. You're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, it's very Twilight zone How hot is it? It's so hot. Tires have burst on, yeah. on cars. But also, look from at the, the heat. look at the colors. They're all gray. Everything's gray except for the lamppost. Mm-hmm. You know, then we see him in the next scene. He hears what sounds like gunshots, pan, pan in, in French. Uh, you know, he's jumping in the air, but behind him, it's just all gray. Then we see that he looks and tr- he turns and sees the car. You know, the heat has, you know, burst the tires on this car. And once again, it's just this weird gray scene all the way through this page. Everything is all blue or gray. Yeah. Like and, and, and Tintin's shadow is weird too. Yeah. And this is nighttime. Yeah. So I don't know if the shadow is coming from the star or the shadow is coming from the I street lamp. I think that's what it's supposed to be because we don't usually see shadow in, in, in Tintin. So we're seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of shadow. And then we see, he, now he's looking for Snowy and then he sees Snowy is standing in the road and he's calling to him, come here. And he goes, it's like he's been paralyzed. He can't move. And then he realizes. Again, dreamlike. Yeah, that's right. And then he walks out into the road and also dreamlike. The road is wet. He's walking in the wet asphalt because it's melting in the, in the sun. So there's all these weird, very much weird kind of feelings. And then to, to further add to the oddness, now the crazy old man that we saw in the observatory has now donned robes and is wandering through the streets, banging a gong, telling people that judgment is upon them, that they have to to repent and the end times are coming. Yeah. And uh, the survive the men will perish and the survivors will die of hunger and cold. There will be pestilence and famine and measles. <laughs> measles. Um, now well, let me ask you this. It's a, it's a pro-vaccination. Uh, sure, sure. Let me ask you this. In the third tier, final panel, when we got all those people there, yeah. usually when we have this kind of situation, Hergé's in there. Is he or is he not? No, there's no uh, there's no Hergé. Uh, no uh, cameo? Cameo in this one. I no. like... There is uh, a cameo, but not a version. Okay, and I, something I like here is it really shows the time of night. Because you got some people who are walking down the street. They've taken off their coats. Mm-hmm. Uh, larger men, they're sweatier uh, at this. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got children uh, yeah. and their parents, who have obviously been in bed, are out there with their slippers. Yeah. You really do get that sense of yeah. something's wrong we got to go outside and check it out yeah exactly yeah. and this and, and is um, once again paraphrasing the french there's tim saying poor people or poor souls i would translate it as they don't know they do, if only they knew so well you could tell them tintin if you if you wanted to it's up well to he doesn't want to create panic either though what's so. it matter you're all going to die at eight o'clock in the morning so <laughs> yes tomorrow not now Fair. Trampling, trampling over each other racing to steal maybe, television maybe sets you want to know stores. why all the rats are running in the streets maybe that so uh now this is weird too like when tintin is uh you know uh telling the prophet to get out of here yeah uh, you're yeah. getting a lot of uh this guy is uh, satan he says of tintin yeah, yeah. yells above get back to satan your master yeah uh this is the first time you've ever mentioned anything like it just seems almost well, out of place had... for a uh no, well i mean partly because the books uh were clean you know all that stuff was edited out of them was there stuff like that before there, not that heavily but you know Tintin would say, you know, thank heavens or thank God or right. may his soul return, you know, go to God. And stuff. So there were religious elements to it, but those were removed for publication, like later on when they were when they're colorized. That all that kind of religiosity was was stripped out of it. Well, in this case, the one religious guy is is clearly a nut. Yeah, and 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 doesn't redeem himself. He's just nuts throughout. Yeah, so. Yeah. That's the perspective on him. So, uh, Tintin, Snowy, get home, look up in the sky. Oh, so let's just talk else? a little bit about this scene sure, sure. where Go Tintin ahead. comes home. It's interesting to me because when he walks in the door, the hall behind him is pure blackness. Yeah. And then he turns to the window and it's pure blackness. And it's almost as if his room is floating in the middle of a black space. It has well, a, now you're creeping me out. It has about a feeling this. to it, isn't it? Yeah. It's just 
it's just this once again i just think or erge is creating this this atmosphere of of uh of you know foreboding and and gloom yeah it's so effectively. hot it's so hot he touches the window frame <laughs> and, and burns. burns his hands <laughs> Uh, so Snowy's really thirsty. Uh, his flowers all wilted. Yeah. Uh, and good. Let me just say this. Good for Tintin. The world's going to end tomorrow. He takes the time to water his plant. You know why? That's hope. That's hope. He's not uh, giving up quite yet. Uh, but, but, uh, but what's also interesting is that um, he's telling Snowy that the world's going to end. The world's going to end. And Snowy is taking it like a dog. Yeah. He's not taking it like the old Snowy, who would have been more worried about his saving his hide. You know, or what? What are we going to do, Tintin? Like he would have had an active part in this conversation. That's over now. So it's Tintin is, or somebody is officially a dog by this point. He's no longer, you know, the old companion that that Tintin had who could talk right. and interact with him. As we say, we we usually do an update every uh, every episode of like how much more of a dog is Snowy, <laughs> yes. and is Tintin still a boy reporter? And in this book, he still is. Still a boy reporter. He still is a boy reporter. <laughs> Can't uh, escape that name. Who never who never reports on anything. Uh, so. Tintin uh, dumped some water on he the He was prof- a feature writer. He didn't do, like, news items. Okay. He came back and he wrote, like, a feature about going on the ship, finding the comet. And he's really involved in the story. Okay, he has a lot here, to tell. Let me, let me say, here's my problem then with all of this. So, Tintin, you're a boy reporter. Yes. Okay, you are a reporter. You're out looking for stories. Yes. What did you just find out? Well, I just went into an observatory and found out it's the end of the world. Yeah. Oh, you're going to write about that? Take that to your editor? No. Oh, not much of a reporter then, are you? You're going to go home and water your plant. Well, I just well said, I reporter just you, fail, I say not... to you. The biggest story ever, the end of the world, not covering it, eh, Tintin? You know you know Tintin. He's, he is a Boy Scout through and through. He's not going to cause general panic for no reason. Well, that's his editor's choice. No, no, it's his choice as well. What do you mean it's his editor's choice? To run the story or he not? Can't make a, he can't make a moral decision either? Once you're an employee of someone, you can't make your own decisions. I think as a reporter, if you find out the world's going to end, maybe it's maybe maybe you should write up that story, Tintin. Eh. Okay, yeah, eh, back at you. All right, <laughs> well, wait, people don't need to know. So the yes, they do. For make, what reason? Make peace with uh, anything. Ugh. You know, call your mom. Uh, do whatever you need to do. Get your affairs in order. You're gonna. The world's gonna explode at eight. Uh, don't bother doing something dumb with your time. Don't go to work in the morning. Sleep in. You know, whatever you're gonna do. So anyway, the prophet's outside his window once again, saying, "Return to your master, prince, the prince of darkness." Somehow he knows where uh, Tintin lives. Yeah, he knows the exact window where Tintin lives. Maybe yeah. Tintin walked into the I building. Think he just the lights, him, and yeah. the lights. I think he followed him home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, Tintin decides uh, while he's watering the plant and uh, uh, giving water to the dog, let's just water the prophet <laughs> uh, from up above. Yes, good stuff. Tintin's had enough of this. He's gonna go and just have a little bit of a sleep, sleep. But the prophet finds the way in. Well, he doesn't say. He does, I think he just says, "I'm just going to rest." He doesn't say, "I'm going to have a sleep." He says, "Phew, I've had enough of this." But he shuts his eyes. Yeah. And then, dong, uh, the prophet's there with a gong, uh, and and shows him a a giant uh, life size poster of a spider, and you can tell it's life size because it says life size on the bottom, <laughs> which is how you know something's life size. Yeah. While banging the uh, gong, but that was just a dream. But it's, inter- it's an interesting dream because it doesn't present itself as a dream. There's no, there's no balloon around. There's no like puffy edges to the to the panels to indicate that he's in a, dr- a dream state. Mm-hmm. There's like absolutely no indication that it's a dream other than him waking up. Now, what could have happened is that the prophet left and he woke up. Uh, that it wasn't a dream, or do you know what I mean? Like it's well, here's it the, doesn't it okay. doesn't make it clear. Like there's no clearness of where the 
Or is a dream still on? Is he still dreaming? Wow. Is the whole journey a dream? Okay, well, we can... Okay, stop it. Are we dreaming? <laughs> stop it. You're creeping me out now. Uh, so Tintin wakes up. Now, here's the here's the where it w- it's odd for me with this. It's like he has a dream. Sure. Not really a nightmare or, or anything, uh, but he has a dream. And when he wakes up, it's still the end of the world. Like, everything yeah. around this dream yeah. is scarier than the dream <laughs> and more surreal than the dream. Yeah. Then he wakes up, and the world's ending. Yes. So that's you. Okay, fair enough. So uh, he's woken up by the dong dong, which he which he Wait. thought was the gong in the dream. Actually, is his clock going off? Yeah, his metal clock is going. And what's weird is, is the having a clock that's slow. Like why? Mm. What? Why? Why would he forget that? And then why does he have it? But anyway, so then he has to. So well, I guess, you know why he has it. He's got a clock that's slow. When's he got time to go and take his clock in for repairs? <laughs> he's having adventures around the world. I guess that's true. It was only a day ago that he had returned from uh, the middle, from the French Absolutely. Morocco. Absolutely. Give him a break. Yeah. I, was, I mean, though he isn't working much as a reporter, to be fair. <laughs> uh, and then we get a nice shot at the end of the actual end of the world, which is everything in his uh, apartment. Um, the wall's cracking. Chandelier swinging, the table tipping yeah. over, the phone falling to the floor, <laughs> yeah. Snowy's water bowl spilling, everything, just the walls cracking, the, even the even his clock is breaking, it's falling off the mantelpiece, finally he'll have to fix it, it'll no longer <laughs> be snow. That's true. There's one good part of the end of the world is he can get his clock fixed. That is a really good, by the way, cliffhanger yes. uh, for that for that day. Yeah. You know, what's happening in, in Tintin, the end of yeah. the world? What? I mean, you know people the next day are going to be checking in. But what's great is that it actually ends with like a, a great sequence of, of scenes of, of of uh, happiness because he's standing there he has his you know hands over his ears and he's like we're dead and then a, p- a piece of plaster falls in his head and then he realizes oh it was just an earthquake and then he f- you know and then he calls the uh, well, observatory says, it's nothing but an earthquake and then yeah. sarcastic snowy goes oh is that all it is <laughs> so good 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 joke there snowy and then uh, he's so excited he's running down the street with all these people once again standing outside in various yeah it's a, it's a wonderful life yeah. you know yeah the people the guy in his his pajamas uh, shaving they already have their brooms the ladies already have their brooms outside ready to sweep the sidewalk as they do mm-hmm. as they do in air shave we know that the ladies are always sweeping in the in the uh, entryways of their built their buildings he says, running down the street, hooray, it was only an earthquake, hooray. Yeah, he uh, he hugs the grump. Hugs the grumpy uh, door, the watchman at the door. Yeah, who seems to have forgiven him for the whole fake fire thing. <laughs> uh, runs up the stairs and opens that. opens the door to the observatory and gets a book right in the face. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's the uh, it's the eccentric professor throwing throwing his book at the, uh, at the assistant who got things wrong. Uh, calling him a bungler and dunderhead, and uh, yeah, he made a mistake with the calculations. Yes, so so it, the 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 mysterious star passed uh, by about forty five thousand kilometers uh, from the Earth. So I guess if it's probably in space terms, that's probably a near miss. I mean, a narrow a narrow escape. Forty five thousand kilometers. Yeah, that seems kind of near. Yeah, and also I like that he says, "Isn't it lucky it didn't hit the moon?" <laughs> yeah, the moon's like a hundred thousand kilometers away, isn't it? Yeah, but the moon isn't always in this. Or is that miles? I don't know. It can be either. Okay. Well, one, no, it can't be either. How about this? One, then the other. Um, <laughs> but I like that he says, you know, uh, you know the meteor passed, you know, 48,000 uh, kilometers away from the Earth instead of colliding with it and causing the magnificent cataclysm I'd hoped for. <laughs> yes. Like, okay. Scientists. All scientists are nuts. Yeah. That's one thing in Hergé's world. They might be sort of nice. They might, might be bad. But if you like science, you're crackers, Jack. So, uh. Tintin's never mind, Professor. Uh, you've still got it in store. Uh, but tell me, what about the earthquake? 
And then we get a little bit more information. Yeah, so then we have the assistant return. Uh, very brave fellow. He was just left having books thrown at him. He returns carrying, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, the strip. Seismograph? No, no seismograph, because that's what that reads uh, Earth Tremors. Okay. This is a, this is a, um, it's a, a, some sort of a reading of, of elements in, in they use, and I can't remember what it's called now. So it has various stripes and they all indicate the different elements that are, that make up this, this mysterious star that just went by. And, uh, so they're looking at it and they realize that one of the, that one of the elements is unknown. And so they're super excited because yeah. they've just discovered an unknown element. They're dancing around, tra lying. Yeah. And of course, Tintin's looking at this uh, readout and he doesn't understand what it's saying. It's all Greek to him. It's all Greek to him. Ah, spectroscope. There you go. Spectroscopic analysis. Nice. And pro- by the way, the professor, and I'm calling him a professor, would that be the right term for a fellow like this? Well, they call scientists. It, it's yeah, scientists. Just call him scientist. Okay. Well, here's I believe he's called professor. What's funny in this, he's called monsieur astronomer. Right. Astronomer. So well, on this funny. page, page eleven, if you go to, if you go down the middle panels of uh, of all these, the the lower three panels, he's doing something which I always find creepy in a strip, which is uh, where the cartoon character looks directly at you. He's not looking at either of the characters. He's just looking at us in the middle in the middle one of each one of those. Yeah. And it could be him just thinking to himself. Yeah. It's kind of, he's not really staring directly at us. He's kind of looking. Over our shoulder, almost. It's kind of a a little bit. It's a weird. His eyes follow you wherever you go in the uh, in the room. But yeah, it's always like a little bit of a creepy thing. No, no other characters do that. Every other character is actually looking at something, and he just takes the time every so often to just look at us. Yeah, look directly forward, which is another thing <laughs> that Hergé has not seemed to do in the past, but is doing in, doing now, and makes things a little creepier to me too, like having a character look right at you. So this is this is a creepy book. You've creeped me out with this. When I read it, I wasn't creeped out. Now I'm a little creeped out. Is that right? Yeah. Let's keep reading it and get <laughs> get this over with. Okay. Continue. Oh well, it's great. Of course, they're talking about this uh, discovery of of this unknown element, and then he, the professor who seems to be listening, suddenly says, "Do you like?" Oh, well, in my version, he says, "Do you like caramels?" Uh, and in your version, he says, "Do you like bullseyes?" Yes. Which is a kid. I didn't know what bullseyes were, so I was kind of confused at first. What? Yeah, I don't know what, what they that, are either. I think they're like jawbreakers or gobstoppers. Okay. Because they, you know, how they have the the different colors in them as it goes through. It's supposed to like think that's what they're. Okay, fair enough. I believe. I believe that's what a bullseye is. All right. I could be wrong, but anyway, so he gives a he gives two francs. Now I don't know if this is a lot. But he gives two francs to his assistant to go out and buy some um, caramels. It's hard to tell back in the old days. Yeah. So is that like a sign of his cheapness that he's giving him, two, you know, a measly two francs to go out and buy some candies for them to celebrate this momentous discovery? Mm-hmm. Or does this show largesse and he's giving a whole two francs just so they can get caramels because they discovered this? It's hard to know. It is hard to know. At this moment. So we can take it either way. Either that he's... Uh, he's very frugal and is having a very measly, meager celebration, or that he is the heart of generosity and they are buying caramels to come out their ears. Let me tell you what a bullseye is, Dave. Okay. Uh, it's a caramel cream. It's kind of a, a, you oh. know, a brown caramel with a little bit of a white center. Okay, there. well, so it's the same thing. Yep. I guess it's just a different, it must be a British name for it. Oh, okay. I was just assuming. I really, I've never known. And when I read this book as a child, there was no Google to look up what, what it was. So you if just... you do have access to bullseyes while reading this, please eat one now yeah. to get, again, that full I, sensory experience. Wish I did. Uh, so, yeah. So, they've discovered, uh, now, in yours, it's called Phoslite. Yeah. In here, it's called Kelisten because the it's the professor of this is, uh, his name is not... Professor, uh, what's his name, Phineas Fossil or something? Something like that, yeah. In this book, he's Hippolyte Kelis is the name of the professor. And so he's going to call it Kelly Sten. 
is the name of this uh, unknown element. So then we discover mm-hmm. that uh, some uh, a polar station near Cape Morris, uh, Professor Fossil, yeah, yeah, now on, off the north coast of Greenland, has seen this meteorite fall into the ocean, and so that means that there is no way to go and discover this. The phosphate or Kelistan, however you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, it is now sunk to the bottom of the sea and is out of reach. And so now the professor going from the, the highs of going to buy bullseyes to the lows of not having any any phosphate. But to be fair to this guy, the world didn't end. It's literally not the end of the world, professor. Yeah. So but that's also upsetting. It is. He wanted the world to yeah. end. Yeah. That's also upsetting for him. Weird. So you can't tell him that. Weirdo. But then Tintin is walking out and he's thinking about this and it's kind of too bad. And then he sees uh, either, he says either uh, the sewer is broken, that's how I read it here, or it's, you know, it's simply the, where the water has gathered. Yeah, the water main broke. By the way, Snowy is upset he didn't get a bullseye. <laughs> we didn't even get a bullseye. That's yeah. true. That's good. Snowy's in character. He's just caring yep. about the candy. Sure. He's forgotten about the end of the world. So, uh, but then uh, Tintin slips on a brick as he's trying to, like, make it across the water. But that's his eureka moment. Uh, drops the brick in the water, gets an idea, sees it sticking out of the water. Snowy, not on board, no idea what he's talking about, thinks he's crazy. Uh, and back Tintin runs through. This goon was really good at shutting a door in a kid's face earlier. Yeah. He is he is off his shutting the door game. But now. I love how angry he is when he when, when Tintin runs in. He's so mad. And Tintin's he's like, so Will happy. Will you quit bothering me? Yeah. I got, well, what, well, what is it this time? And off he goes. Back into talking to the professor. Explains the idea that the, the meteorite came down. It'd be enormous. And there would still probably be a huge mass that was sticking out of the water. And, and the professor is delighted. Uh, by this information. Sure. Time to make a search. <laughs> so then we have the classic uh, Hergé device of a radio mm-hmm. telling us that an expedition has been mounted. Yeah, someone's covering this as news, and it ain't Tintin. <laughs> and, uh, and they're going to make a, a voyage into the Arctic, or wherever, the Arctic, I guess, uh, looking for this, this uh, the it's called an aerolith, the meteorite, that has fallen into the ocean. And what's interesting... I sent. I was talking about Hergé and his uh, following uh, the king's uh, idea of neutrality to the nth degree. So where you find it here, and we'll kind of tie it into something else. Is so we turn we turn the page and we find the group of uh, of scientists who are going to be on this this voyage. And one thing I love about this sequence is so let's pretend that we're reading the the daily soir. Okay. You know the soir comes out every day. Right. We get it. We turn to Tintin. We're so excited to get there. We get four panels. Describing four different professors going on this voyage. Okay. We're like, okay, all right. And we're going tomorrow. Yeah, we're going to see something tomorrow. The next day, the paper comes out. You get to that page again. You turn there. You, you, you know, you don't read. Let's say you're a kid. You turn. It's right by the stock reports. Yeah. You don't care about that stuff. It's hard to even find those pages. You finally get there. You turn to the page. Another four portraits of four more scientists well, who are going to... Well, two the, scientists and then Tintin, Tintin and, and, and Captain, Captain So maybe you're excited to see Captain Haddock going. You're like, oh, good Captain... But that's all you get. Yeah. And what's most frustrating is you will never see these scientists again. <laughs> they are basically all background for the rest of the story, except for uh, Cantino yeah. uh, from the University of Freiburg. Freiburg. He, he will, uh, he will uh, appear 
uh, briefly have a bit of a speaking role. The well, rest of them could just be played I, by mannequins. Here's what I here's what I like though is you got all their uh, pictures and you got Captain Haddock. He's in front of uh, the ocean. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you. Sure. Everyone else has just a different color behind them, yeah. except for the professor who uh, has a lot of stars in the background. Well, he might have had something fall on his head. That's know? what it looks like. Yeah. It's not stars as in nighttime stars, <laughs> which we've seen. It's bonk you on the noodles stars. <laughs> but what's what's also interesting is that when you look at the makeup of the the countries these scientists are from. So we have Brussels. Yeah. We have someone from Sweden. Sweden. We have someone from Spain. Mm-hmm. We have someone from Germany. Yep. We have someone from Por- Portugal. Uh, well, actually, Cantonau from, sorry, from uh, France and then from Portugal. And then we have Tintin from Brussels. We have well, Captain. Young reporter. So besides the captain, everyone is from either an Axis country or a neutral country. Mm. There are no, and no one from the Allied countries except for Captain Haddock, who's from England. Obviously. And so he is the one. Sorry, everybody. They have to take that person back to the hospital. They came by earlier. They've picked him up. As I said, in the summertime, people forget how to drive and spend all their time driving into the back of each other's cars. And this is what happens. And if you like Tintin, that's what he does, too. So who are we to judge? <laughs> that's right. It could have been Tintin driving. He drove four feet and smashed his car up. Yeah, that's what he does. That's how he does it. Um, so now, now, RJ has been criticized for this. For showing, you know, not having, uh, you know, people from other places, just all. But what this actually was part of wasn't, wasn't really, partly it's to do with sensors. He had these two sensors who were like reading everything he's doing and he's got to get the, past them. If he makes them, if he makes it obviously Britain or obviously United States or whatever, they're not going to like it. They're, you know, he already couldn't, uh, he couldn't publish the Black Island. He couldn't publish... Um, since in America because of the nationalities that were featured in those stories. So he's kind of limited to what he can show. But this also ties into something that he learned from Father Wale, which is this theory that at some point the world would go, there would be a united Europe in comp- competition against the United States. So that's, that was his, that was Father Wale's vision of, of this sort of Catholic Europe, a sort of Catholic anti-democratic Europe going up against capitalist United States. That was his vision of, of the future. And so Hergé was kind of, I don't know if he believed it or if he was just using it as part of the story. Right. To create this competition between, this rivalry between the United States and Europe. Now, what he didn't foresee, for whatever reason, is, you know, that there would be communist Russia that would keep everyone's attention for the next 50 years after the war. And no one would worry about, there wouldn't really be this sort of competition between Europe and the United States. That they would be cooperative in the face of this giant right. threat. But now we see you know, a united Europe. So in that way, he's kind of prescient in what he was talking about. But uh, I don't think that's really what, you know, it's just a part of the story. I think part of the story, machinations, where it gets, the problem is, is that by making, when the original story was published, by making the Americans the villains, is that, you know, you start a story in October, uh, and then almost a little, a little more than a month and a half later, the Americans are attacked at Pearl Harbor mm-hmm. and join the war. Now your story is... Uh, about a country bef- who was neutral before. When you started the story, they were a neutral country. Now they are a country that are against Germany uh, that you're writing about in a German-controlled newspaper. So this is part of one of the problems that he had with the story later on. You know, it kind of came back to haunt him. We can go on if you'd like. All right. So we're at the dock. Uh, three days. Oh, just later. one more thing. Actually, oh, I'm I will sorry. Go back. Sure. I'm please. sorry. Um, it's been said. Well, no. Keep going. Keep going. No, no. What's it's been no, no, said? No, no. It's fine. I'll talk about it in a little bit. All right. In a different context. So Tintin's at the docks. He's often at the docks. 
he's about to board the uh, the Aurora. Uh, notices someone running down the gangplank. That's odd, he thinks. Uh, calls to him. The guy bolts. Tintin's not having that. Drops his bag. Runs after him. Unfortunately, a bit of rope trips him up. Come yep. found that rope. That uh, guy <laughs> vanished. Wondering what was up. Uh, so uh, up Tintin goes up the gangplank and uh, talks to a guy wearing a tam. Uh, yeah, clearly a British sailor here. Okay. With a pipe and a tam and a very firm jaw. Uh, asks if anyone... Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. If someone knows that it's not... A, uh, to me, it looks like a British a sailor's uniform. Well, he's wearing, the exact, he's wearing the exact same uniform as uh, Haddock, except for the hat. So I could be wrong, you know. If that's the British uniform that Haddock's wearing, then he's wearing a British uniform. Yeah, I don't know about that. Blue shirt, anchor on the front. Anchor on the front. I don't know if that's a British uniform. But anyway, go on. Anyway, I like that. Uh, by the way, I like that shirt. I, I, I wish they sold those. And probably they do somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the guy didn't see anyone prowling about. Uh, Snowy's giving things a good sniff. Smells something. Uh, uh, Tintin asks if Captain Haddock's in his cabin. Yep, off he goes. And Tin and Snowy, meanwhile, finds a stick of dynamite. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tintin uh, uh, goes sees Haddock. Uh, Snowy comes a barking. Uh, come, come along. Tugs on the old uh, coat. Uh, off they go to check out what's up. Yes. And I, before we turn the page, I just want to point out I do, I do like uh, Captain Haddock's first aid cabinet full of whiskey. Yes. That's very nice. Well, things need to be sterilized. Yes, that's right. And characters need to be established. Sure. And that has established his character now. <laughs> uh, we see the the stick of dynamite, uh, but it is out. Uh, and good old Snowy says, Tintin, he, well, he did his best, Captain. <laughs> Very he good. He put out the fuse the way a dog can. Very good joke. Actually, uh, edited out of Crab of uh, Cigars of the Pharaoh, there was a similar scene that Ergie was going to put in that. That was edited out of it. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, so, still, and they, well, you know, they uh, finally able to use it. They colored the liquid uh, white, which mm -hmm. you know is uh, classier. Well, he drank a lot of water that day. Also, he's snowy. It would, mm -hmm. be, it would be white. <laughs> uh, so uh, Tintin and the uh, captain start talking about who who'd want to blow this up. Uh, someone wanted to blow up the ship, uh, damage it badly. Who would want to do that? Uh, Haddock uh, just wishes to get his hands on that kind of person. Uh, uh, says he's going to keep his eyes open and ends up spotting somebody. Off he goes. Yeah. Uh, into the darkness. Uh, grabs him, uh, calling him a dynamiter and a shipwrecker. <laughs> uh, drags him out, and it's the professor. Yes, Professor Fossil. Yeah. Who's going to make a complaint to the captain, only to be introduced to the captain, the man who just attacked him. But it is explained to him that they just had... They just prevented an act of sabotage, mm -hmm. and so now they're everything's so it's, everything's calm. The professor, of course, gets to put put his collar back collar on because yeah. when you get attacked, your collar springs apart. That's a well-known fact. Of, yeah, the of first the step is you, your collar springs out. Next yeah. is your clothes shatter yes. and your your shoes blow yeah. off. Yeah, that's right. So they go to check on the dynamite. Dynamite is gone. All that remains is what Snowy left behind: uh, thundering typhoons. Says uh, the captain, uh, does not understand uh, this at all. Uh, here's the ship's bell. Uh, goes up to um, you know the uh, what, do you, what do you call that? Where you the bridge? The bridge. There you are. Uh, no one's at the bridge, uh, but here's uh, ahoy there, captain. Uh, there's a the person there who has a suitcase dropped on his not. Does he have a suitcase dropped on his head? Yeah. Yeah. Suitcase dropped on his head. What's going on? Well, looking up, <laughs> it's the uh, it's the prophet. It's Philippolis. Yeah. He's uh, dropping stuff down on people. 
You know, uh, <laughs> he gave him a warning, and now he's got some dynamite. We find out this was the guy. And he's got nice old-timey dynamite, like uh, Wiley Coyote-style dynamite. Just to go back to the, this is the last time we'll hear uh, Paul Cantono speak in this in this book. But what's interesting about him is he has a speaking role in this. He'll also feature in the Seven Crystal Balls, a later uh, Tintin story as well. Oh, okay. He plays a he goes as part of the expedition in that as well. So, uh, yeah, this is nice. his first appearance in Tintin. So uh, the you know our uh, our friend the prophet is uh, tossing down dynamite. Uh, Tintin goes up to try and stop him. Luckily, Tintin's round head bounces the dynamite off it. It <laughs> lands in the ocean. Everyone is saved. Uh, Tintin keeps uh, following up higher and higher. Uh, that's his watchword, says the prophet. Uh, uh, and Tintin's worried the man's going to kill himself. Yeah, and the man doesn't seem to be too concerned about it, actually. He's, he's right at the very top of the mast, uh, you know, just happily dancing away on top of a... Looks like another mass. I don't know why they're so close together. I'm yeah. not. And and it must be a part and of the Professor mast. Fossil mentions that uh, they oh, worked I together see. in the past. I see how it's kind of interesting. He's begging him to come down, uh, but the uh, the prophet thinks that he's not fossil. He's just assumed his form. Yes. So the captain attempts to uh, bring him down by saying that he is the he is God he is uh, before God, I guess, on this ship. And then... Uh, what, is that what you got in there? Uh, it's something like that. What does it say in, in I've got, but I'm Captain Haddock by Thunder in command of this ship, and I order you to come down oh, that's blistering funny. barnacles and double quick. It says here, I am the, I am the only master on, on board after God. Oh, And okay. I order you to come down again. And this guy says, and the, the Philippolis yells, excuse me, I am the only master aboard God. Or, sorry, after God. Wow, we're getting a little philosophical debate yeah, going yeah. on here. So then Tintin grabs um, the, a megaphone and goes and he sells, he calls up to uh, to Philippolis saying, this is God speaking. Oh, I don't have that. Interesting. So they took that out of it. Yeah, with mine it's, okay, what's yours say? And I'll say what mine is. So Tintin uh, goes, he says, he says, hello, hello. <laughs> like he's talking to a phone. Yeah, I got hello, hello. He says, uh, he says God the Father here, Prophet Philippolis, I order you to come down back onto Earth and pay attention don't hurt yourself. Okay. Here is the English. Or sorry, be, be careful. Have we mentioned that you're going from the French version yet? I don't know. I don't know if we have. Dave I said I've been paraphrasing. Yeah, Dave has been going from the French version here. Yeah. Here is the English version. Okay. Hello, hello, Philippus, Philippus uh, the prophet. This is your guardian angel speaking from heaven. I order you to return to earth and be careful. Don't break your neck. Yeah, yeah. He says something like that here. Which seems like a guardian angel would have to take care of that business anyway. Yeah, he says, don't break your face, which I guess is the idiom for don't, don't <laughs> break your neck. And then it's, French. yes, sir, at once, sir. Don't he be said, angry, sir. Yeah, he goes, I obey, I obey. Don't be mad. And then... Uh, then a couple of attendants come onto the ship from a... couple of white coats. A couple of, from a lunatic asylum. Of course, they just walk right on. Where's that guard now? And then uh, they take him away because he's a madman. Yep. And then we look down a panel and we have a couple of cameos. Quick appearances, one by Thompson and Thompson. Yep. And in front of them, two boys running. That's Quick and Flipka. Nice. Who are running to see the, sh the ship take off. And then once again, classic Hergé, uh, exposit ex an exposition dump. Someone talk, talking to a microphone, right? So that we know a that, reporter uh, of sorts, yes, who actually again. reports. Once again, Tintin is not a reporter in that way. He is a feature writer. He'll write a long story, telling us, you know, it'll be like in the Sunday magazine supplement sure. in the paper. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, uh, and uh, the captain is being uh, seen off. He gets a bunch of flowers. 
goodbye, Captain. Uh, you know, never forget the eyes of the whole world and the SSS will be upon you. Uh, good luck. That's the Society of Sober Sailors. Yes. Wishing him best because, you know, he is uh, he's dry now, even though we've yeah. seen his uh, first aid cap. Well, even more than that, when he receives his bouquet of flowers from, from these two delegates from the uh, SSS, uh, sailor comes up and says, excuse me, sir, your, your uh, shipment's here. And he goes, what shipment? And then he goes, that. And then we look and we see, uh, well, at least five crates of whiskey yes. being uh, brought onto the, the ship. And it's, it's all uh, Johnny Haig or John Haig whiskey. I've just got whiskey. On the, these boxes, it says John Haig whiskey, which is interesting because later on, all, all the whiskey that you will see the captain drinks is all Loch Lamond. Okay. Which it hadn't become a thing at this point in the stories. So, so yeah. And then we, we uh, do see it in the Black Island, but because the Black Island was drawn much later, the the Loch Lamond thing. Back to Mr. Exposition, the reporter, and here's the president of the European European Foundation for Scientific Research with the leader of the expedition, uh, Professor Fossil, uh, handing uh, over the flag to be planted on the meteorite. An important flag to remember will feature heavily later in the story. The flag is entrusted to him, uh, confident it will soon fly from the summit of the meteorite. Here you go. Uh, down the gangplank uh, comes someone saying, Captain, I just wanna, Captain, go ahead. interesting in this second panel is, uh, it's, I'm curious why there are three different of the professors or hair doctors who are wearing sailor's caps, as if they're going on, as if they're, they're uh, yachting, yachting men. Huh. And one of them, I was going to say this before, but one of them has been said to be a caricature of Auguste Picard, the inventor of the, the bathysphere. Okay. Uh, so I, that's possible. I don't know. I've seen pictures of him. There's a slight resemblance. He looks like a lot of professors. I think I think Hergé liked to draw like kind of a generic mad professor type, sort of the missing hair on top of their head, elaborate facial hair. There you go. There's a professor. Yep. All right. We're about a third of the way through the story. It's time to get the ticking clock happening. Uh, what happens is uh, there's a note uh, from the radio operator saying that the polar ship uh, Perry uh, has uh, sailed from Sao, Sao Rico? Sao Rico? Sao Rico yesterday on a voyage of exploration into Arctic waters. The Perry will try to find the meteorite as well. So now the race is on. Who will get there first? Yes. Off they run up the gangplank. Uh, toot! Uh, goes the, uh, tutor. And, uh, back to the back of the head of the, the reporter ship's, on the, the next. ship's horn, do you mean? Sure, I guess so. Pipe? Stovepipe? Sure, yeah. stovepipe. Yep. Yeah. Whatever. Same the same tutor. Deal. You know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about. The Yes, the Tudor house. Okay. Uh, so uh, the last the Tudor moor- garage. There you are. All right. We're doing that, are we? Uh, the last moorings have been cast off. It's a moment of departure, and off it goes. Uh, listening to this is, uh, I believe, is this a banker? Yes. Right. And uh, who has a little bit of an unfortunate Jewish nose. Yes. And uh, in the original, in Le Soir, he was, uh, his name was Blumenstein. Mm-hmm. Not Bullwinkle. Um, this is an unfortunate part of the story, I think. Is uh, and I don't think once again because of what Hergé did later in his life, it's either he learned from this or he just was being ignorant to the point of or naive to the point of of ignorance or stupidity with how he was presenting Jews at this time. Uh, when he finished the Crab with the Golden Claws, he actually worked on a. Uh, while he was simultaneously doing this story, he was also illustrating uh, some fables for this writer named Robert de Bois de Vroiland. And de Vroiland was a former editor at Rex Editions. Rex Editions was the publishing arm of the Rexist fascist party in Belgium. So this, this guy was a fascist. 
and he hired Hergé to do some drawings for this book of fables that he wrote. Most of them are fairly benign. There was one that was uh, a complete, was a completely, this complete uh, ridicule of this of the English, of this, this Englishmen, who of course were opponents of the uh, the Axis powers. And then the other one was uh, just a typical, uh, you know, targeting of Jews, you know, which also reflected that time as well. Yeah. And unfortunately, it reflected the time not just Nazis, but throughout Europe. Yeah. Throughout Europe at that time, Jews were not well liked. That's just a fact. So, when we're reading things from that time period, you have to kind of I don't say turn your head away because you have to face it that there was anti-Semitism that was unpleasant. Mm-hmm. Whether you're talking about Richard Wagner, or Nietzsche or uh, Anthony Trollope, his early books, um, you'll find it in Charles Dickens, you'll find all kinds of anti-Semitism, uh, unpleasant, uh, unpleasant descriptions, unpleasant behavior by Jews. That's not, un- it was just not uncommon in that time. And something that, you know, either they changed, you know, they, they changed or they didn't, you know. And so Hergé, in his youth, obviously, or his younger years, he's no longer youth, so he doesn't have that excuse. He's in his 30s at this point. But... It just seems odd, you know, to be doing this sort of thing here. So, you know, to Hergé, uh, to him, it was just part of the joke, part of the humor of that time period was to have funny Jewish people or funny English people or funny whoever people in stories. And he would do caricatures of... Of whatever, yeah. Yeah. And so... There were other, you know, in other books, there have been big-nosed characters. There have been... Yeah. You know, there's that and and yeah. Again, it's it's not making an excuse. It is, it's given a context for the time period that it was in. And there you are. So, you know, there so, it is. It's still there. So, you know, to me, it's a kind of a tone deafness, you know. And so we see the same tone deafness here with the character of Bullwinkle, or as he was called originally, Blumenstein. Mm-hmm. Now, to Hergé's to defense, he actually did not know Blumenstein was a Jewish name. He thought, he just wanted, he just picked kind of randomly picked what he thought of as, a, as an American name mm-hmm. for, a, for a financier. In the original story, there was no Sao Rico. It was America versus Europe in the original story. Sao Rico was, was added in, in the, in the fifties, in 1954. They republished it and they changed all the American references to, to change it to Sao Rico. Why there has suddenly been a, an added Portuguese speaking country to, 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 you know, uh, Central and or South America, I don't know, but apparently he just threw it in there. Yeah. So no longer Brazil is the sole Portuguese speaking country in, in, in the, South America. Now there's two of them. But, uh, and then, so, so in the story, and it kind of was following, if we're saying he was following the Jules Verne story, that had a Jewish banker. Mm-hmm. So he followed that as well. He said, okay, he's a Jewish banker. He's an American. You know, to, to him, you know, he was just draw, drawing a villain. And the villain is American moneyed interests, big capital, capitalism. They were already, he already criticized it in Tintin in America. You know, so it wasn't a change, his feelings about America at this time. He still felt, you know, that kind of unease at America's, you know, it's huge, it's, 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 you know, celebration of capitalism. He wasn't a big fan of it, yeah. you know, as part of the, the sort of overall ideology of Le Petit Vantium or the Vantium Siakla. But given the story setting in a Nazi controlled propaganda organ, and the tenor of the times, the creeping persecution of Belgians at that time, you know, they were now, Basically, any there's there were there were native Jewish you know Jewish Belgium Jews, and then there were Jews who came from other countries where the Nazis had moved in to try to find a place that was safe for them, and here they were again surrounded by Nazis and being persecuted. They were limited to they could only uh, live in four different cities 
in Belgium. They weren't allowed to like live in the countryside and stuff like that. They had to be in controlled areas, you know. So they were already being persecuted, and so now there's this weird blender by Hergé that kind of defeats his original ideas, which was just this idea of America versus Europe, not Jews versus Jews versus uh, Europeans or whatever, yeah. you know. And so it kind, you know, it makes it. But now it's like he's talking about the international Jewish banking conspiracy or something like that, you know which I don't think he believed in. And so I don't think he was trying to, to do that. Yeah. But uh, You could also just look at it as this is just one greedy guy here, too. Yeah, I mean, this is one, that's right. In those ways, he could have done it. And instead of changing all to Sao Rico, he could have just had the American authorities are coming to arrest him. Mm-hmm. So then we know that it's not just, it's not an American plot. It's a plot by one person who happens to be an American. Yeah. That's an acceptable thing. I mean, we, I think we can accept the fact that there might be an American person who does something wrong in a story. And, I think we've and accepted pays, that many times. Yeah, and, and pays pays for it in some way. They don't always have to be South Americans, or not. So, so they don't have to be South Africans or Nazis. Yeah, you know, to be villains. Sometimes you can have a villain who's just your neighbor. And so uh, now, so when he f- was told this about Blumenstein, he changed the name to Bullwinkle. Uh, it kind of gave it a different spelling to make Americanize it. He felt, and then and a Bullwinkle is actually it's a nickname or a slang for a Belgian pastry shop. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. So it was just a name he just kind of picked because he liked to do that. So once again, he was then told, well, actually, this is a Jewish name as well, Hergé. And so now for Hergé, because he never intended this as an anti-Semitic attack, you know, when he changed it, he felt like, I don't need to change it anymore. I, okay, I've been told this is a Jewish name. I did not intend this. To change it again, it m- makes it seem like I'm admitting guilt. Mm-hmm. You know, to keep it the way it is, we're just saying that's what it is. You know, so he didn't want to change it. He just left it how it was. There were the plans were were written down in '59 to actually change like the nose yeah. of the character to try and like kind of take that a little bit away. I could see that happening. Yeah. Uh, there was actually a much more offensive scene in the story uh, early on when Tintin is walking through the streets of Belgium or wherever he lives. When he's walking through these streets, and he, we're being told that it's the end of the world. Uh, there's two. There's two Jewish characters. Uh, who hear this and they say, oh, that's good. We don't have to pay our debts. I owe a lot of money and now I don't have to pay because they're cheap, right? Ha, ha, ha. But they're like full-on yeah. Jewish caricatures with the full beard and the hats and the yeah. long hair and everything. Very unpleasant. And the hook nose and all the rest yeah. of it, right? The whole stereotype. And Hergé, you know, he cut that out. He cut it out, out of the color one. He, it was in the newspaper, but it never made it into the book. Right. And I think he was, even he was feeling or noticing how times were changing i hope that's why he did it you know i hope that's why he did it um so yeah it, it's something once again i think to Hergé, i think his whole his whole life he never really understood why these things were offensive to people to him they were just funny things yeah. you know and it was part of his his way of his sense of humor or or, or that sense of humor of that time period of you know the caricatures were funny and when you drew cartoons of people, you drew them in a cartoony manner. Right. And, uh, but I hope, and when I was talking a little bit before about how he kind of perhaps inadvertently, you know, kind of got caught up in the ideology of Le Petit or the, or the Vantium Sacla, the, the sort of kind of pro, very far right Catholicism and all that. And it kind of, it kind of crept into some of his stories and some themes and stuff like that. I think maybe it's the same thing here. He's working for Le Soir, this very pro-German, anti-ally, anti-English, anti-Jew paper. And whether he agreed with it or not, and, you know, all the time that he drew in Le Soir, whenever he drew a picture of someone with a newspaper, they never were reading Le Soir, ever. It was always a different 
Belgium newspaper, one that was a free paper. It wasn't under the, under the yeah. control of the Nazis. So even he was making comments about the paper he worked in within his stories. But so he was aware of that. But uh, I th- it still feels like perhaps, you know, that kind of thinking kind of crept in inadvertently. Either he wanted to please the censors, please his bosses, you know, and, you know, in order to get that pat on the back that we all want, that we all crave from people, you end up make, making yeah. aesthetic decisions that, that you maybe wouldn't have in other circumstances. Oh, excuse me, other circumstances. I want to think the best of him because I like his art and I like what he mm-hmm. what he did. But sometimes it's hard to defend someone, and this is one of those one of those times where you're like, "Ugh, this is a great great story, yeah. great book." But this caricature. But this caricature. Boo. Yes, exactly. Boo. Unfortunate. So unfortunate. Okay. So the caricature uh, guy, uh, Bullwinkle. I just want to just one go more ahead. thing about it just before we go Please on. Please go ahead. Because of course people talk ask him questions about it later on. Mm-hmm. One of the things he would say was that was the style then. You know, it wasn't just me. Lots of people were doing it. Mm-hmm. And then he later added, he said, of course, if we, if one knew about the final solution, I would not have drawn the things that I did. You know, like if you knew. He also, but he added in the same, same interview, just like he just, he also added, or maybe I didn't want to know. You know, maybe, cause he always said, I did not notice. I did not see. I didn't see any gold stars on Jews at that time. You know, but then I would always say, or maybe I just had my my eyes closed to what was really happening. And in that way, it was like a lot of other people. And, yeah. yeah, a lot of other people at that time, because the reality is so terrible that you'd rather close your eyes to it than face it. Right. You know, and unfortunately, we do not get that story where Tintin heroically rescues people from a concentration camp, which would have been a great wartime story, only it never could have been published. So the reality is it just was not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, he had to work within the confines of of his situation as well. And that was a situation, you know. So, uh, I think we can go on now. Okay. So, the character himself, uh, Bullwinkle, his motivation, he reveals, is not uh, to have a scientific exploration. He doesn't yeah. care. No. He just wants his thing for the money of it. Yeah. Wah-ha-ha-ha. <laughs> so, we're yeah. on the Aurora. He, he represents moneyed interests, That's right. right. Money, yeah. money, money. Uh, so, uh, the Aurora is going uh, through the ocean uh, on their way. Uh, we get some comedy scenes going on here. Uh, one is Tintin and Snowy uh, yeah. taking a nice deep breath of that. We get, uh, we get Tintin's King of the World moment. That's right. Uh, taking a deep breath of that wonderful uh, sea air. Of course, he gets a wave in the face as the Snowy. They end up soaked. Yes. Good little visual. Yeah. Goes uh goes walking. Uh, it's time for uh, dinner. Uh, well, let's just say before we go on, I sure. just want to say. Uh, oh, you like the water? You want to mention the water? Oh, water's so good. But we have a picture of the, of the the ship. Now that was based like Hergé did do research for for his boats and stuff as usual. So the Aurora was based on the RRS William Scoresby, which was a royal research ship mm-hmm. that actually did Ar- Antarctic exploration. And so he kind of based his studies on that. And in the spirit of neutrality, as usual, the airplane is a German Arado 196A, which, of course, probably was easy for him to do research for that. It's probably, you know, more information available on that kind of plane than any other for him. But he still hated the drawings of the ship because the reality is how he drew it, it pretty much would have sank right away. <laughs> so he, he knew it wasn't seaworthy, but it was too late. He couldn't, he couldn't change it. So All it's right. what it is. So, um, and once again, that terrible Hergé smoke. Uh, Tintin mentions the seaplane uh, that's up there on his catapult, which will help in the search for the meteorite. Now into another comedy bit. Uh, yes. Everyone's getting there uh, ready for dinner. It's uh, basically bangers and mash, uh, sausages and mash, as they say here. Uh, but where are the sausages? <laughs> Cut to a very happy, very full Snowy. 
who couldn't even finish two of the sausages. Do you do you read it when your eye looks at it? Do you read it as like tin, or somebody's floating in the air because it's this shadow on the deck? Where's his shadow? Or is that just me? Because the sausages, they, to me, they make they look like a shadow to me. Oh, when no, I look I, at it quickly, I, that's when the first time I looked at it. I was, why is or why is snowy? Oh, he's not floating. It's the sausages. Yeah, it's just the sausages. No, I th- uh, cartoon logic says you float when you smell a wonderful thing. You will float towards the pie. Yeah. But once you've finished your meal, you you are not floating. You are heavy and bloated. Yeah. Uh, but he seems. I like that Snowy is enjoying the sausages that he just and, and isn't going. Oh, I made a beast of myself and is holding his belly. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, for all the complaining that there's no sausages, maybe it was for the best, because everyone, with the exception of Tintin and uh, Captain Haddock, is uh, seasick. Yes, and this is a great sequence. I love how, now, if you look at, now, the way it would have run in, in the uh, the soir, this would have been the, the the page for the day. But what's great about it is he's divided into two small two small tiers. Now, on the top tier, we have the ship yeah. uh, bucking you know, up and down in the waves. And then we see the the, the scientists slowly uh, turning green. So we start with you know Professor Fossil. He's this skin color, skin skin tone. Then we see uh, Professor, the Swedish professor, a little gray. Uh, he's a little gray. And then we see the next one a little greenish gray. And it keeps on going until we finally come to full on green. But then if you look at how the ship is moving, so on the top panel the ship is is going up. And then you look down at Professor Fossil. The scene is going up. Yeah. Then the next panel. The ship is going down the waves, and you look at the, that panel. The ship is going down the waves, and now we break. So the next panel, the ship is going da- still going down as we look above, but now the panel's going up, and from then on, the panels go counter to what the ship is doing. So it, it ge- also gives you that sense of of the sort of movement, the sickening movement, because now we have them going counter to each other as we head to the end of the of that little run of, of panels. Right. Very cleverly done. Now, this is an interesting thing here to me where, you know, there is the gag that the the, the captain doesn't drink. Yeah. You know, and he sneaks the drinks and, yeah. and you know, all that. But he's drinking here at the table, no problem. Yeah, but it's funny, isn't it? That wine was seen as something different. Wine was yeah. separate from alcohol. It was yep. a totally separate thing for people then. Yeah. Because, you know, I guess kids can drink it, so why not? Yeah. So, um, and that night, uh, it's impossible for Tintin to sleep a wink. Uh, ships are rolling and dancing a jig. Cut to, let's see what Bullwinkle's up to, asking if there's any further news on the Kentucky Star. Nothing more. So here's here's an interesting thing uh, I find in the story as well. One is that they still call the ship the Peary, who was an American explorer. Okay. Big hint. And then also this Sauerican ship called the Kentucky Star. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That is true. Uh, so the Tintin says, I got a good mind to go and join the captain on the bridge. And that good mind makes him go join the captain on the bridge. So uh, puts on his uh, raincoat, and him and, uh, and Snowy go walking through the hall, smashing into the walls, making yeah. a few stars. Uh, but it oh. is crazy, crazy with the waves on the deck. Uh, looks like uh, Tintin's going to be swept away. He is not. It looks like Snowy's going to be swept away. At the very last second, Tintin grabs uh, poor little Snowy's tail. Uh, luckily, not a lot of tail injuries in this one so this is far. My, this is my favorite page in the book. It's great. I, I love this page. If, if I had like millions of dollars, I, I would try and buy this this art actually it's so brilliant because it's it as usual once Hergé learned direction he was a, became a master of how you direct your eye in through panels so we saw it a little bit with the, the seasickness page so you know if you look at that page besides the the scene of the captain and Tintin sitting at the table so calm and not feeling seasick at all and that scene is completely straight so you understand how they feel yeah Every other scene, besides the Bullwinkle uh, cutaway, every other scene shows movement, rocking, the ship is rocking, the ship is moving, great. And we get to this page. Now this is about direction. So we have Tintin 
So he's standing and he's looking at the wave. So the wave comes and it crashes into him. So it pushes him to the right. So we have three panels going to the right. I hope people are looking at this if you're not. But anyway, it's okay. So we have three panels going to the right. The last panel going to the right, his hand is reaching towards a pipe. He grabs it in the next panel. That panel stops your, your eye movement along that course. So we stop there. Now the, the movement is going back. It's now going to the left. So if we go down to the next here, he's looking to the left. He's looking to the left at Snowy. Snowy's going down. Stop the movement there. Now we have the movement going the other direction. So now Tintin is running towards Snowy, runs towards him, grabs him, grabs him by the tail. He's still going forward, forward. And then we stop at Captain Haddock, who's turning and looking back at, at, at Tintin. Once again, here's the calm scene in this. So we have all that motion and movement, that back and forth of the scenes. And then we stop at the captain. And once we get there with Tintin and the captain, all the scenes go forward. They're looking, they're all looking right, looking right until the final part of that sequence of the page when they see the ship coming to their, to their left again. Yeah. And then we have that quick cut to the left. Just masterfully done. You don't even notice when you're reading it how much your eye is being drawn and which direction and how it's making you, making, giving that action this extra sense that you're not, you're subconsciously noticing, but you yeah. don't. These two pages done. together, uh, 24 and 25, yeah, yeah, it's masterwork. I also love how after this big dramatic scene of grabbing uh, Snowy, uh, you see Captain Haddock just standing there very casually like, oh, you know, it's yeah, a nice little exactly. breeze. And that's the break, right? That's yeah. where you get that sense of all this motion, all this madness, Snowy almost being washed overboard, you know, and then, you know, we're going back and forth, back and forth. And then we come to him standing there, you know, just this and looking back at, at Tintin. So Tintin's coming towards him. There he is just standing there, this you know, this total calm, oh, a little bit of a breeze today, you know, just perfectly yeah. done. I also, I, I also like when a character is good at the thing they do. Yeah. Because you can just make Haddock just the, oh, and uh, I like drinking. Yeah. Uh, but I like that he's really good at his job. Yeah. He's a that's very right. good captain. He's standing on this bridge, very calm. Yeah. Totally in control. Everything's fine. Yeah. 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 And then uh, spots the other ship coming towards him. Thundering Typhoon. But once again, he's good at his, he's good at what he does. He's able to avoid... He goes, you know, he's hard to starboard, hard to starboard, or triboard, as it was called in French, apparently, triboard. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and he turns and misses. And a uh, nice uh, bunch of swears here: pirates, shipwreckers, sea lice, filibusters, hoodlums, roadhogs, freshwater swabs. Yes. Yeah, very upset by all this. Uh, <laughs> thinking, uh, what a that guy was a terrible driver, and Tintin's mentioning maybe it was on purpose. Huh? What do you mean? You know, uh, someone's already tried to sabotage the ship. Maybe uh, that was uh, a continuation with that. Yeah, you're right. But who on earth? Someone. Who could it be? Cut to Mr. Bullwinkle. Uh, frustrated that his evil plan has not worked so far. Yes. Oh, bungling fools. <laughs> you can tell someone's a villain if they use the word fools. <laughs> Quiet, you fool. I mean, no one good ever says that. Yeah. Uh, we cut back to the ship. See, oh, the poor seasick professor yeah and uh, other can, scientists can i just point out this is just another ex little example of reversal as well so well done so we go from the calm of uh the captain and, and tintin you notice that they're standing in this incredible storm that in the last pages was making the ship move all over the place yeah here they are just perfectly still we cut to bullwinkle once again he's on land so there's gonna be no movement then we cut to the professor's sick in bed the scene is tilted to your left next scene tilted to your right the other professor you know do you mind if i open the window get some fresh air, do whatever you want, just let me die in peace, as the you know, Cantino lying on the bottom. Probably has a, he probably has a, a concussion as well from the suitcase landing on his head. Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, well, then a little sleep will do him good. So then we know the professor feels better because the scene is totally straight. So you don't get any sense of rocking. He's getting a nice breeze from the window. Ah, that's beautiful. And then 
reversal again. The water comes now from the right. He's looking to the right, or for, to, to the right. The water comes in the left direction into his face, and the, the scene is tilted again. Yeah. So then you go back to, to chaos. Ugh, Hergé. So good. <laughs> All right, let's cut to some days later. A uh, very cold morning, Tintin goes out for a walk on the deck and uh, does a very good slip and fall. Uh, nice falling movement. You really get that sense that it's both cold and uh, yeah. slippery. <laughs> yeah. well, especially because uh, Snowy goes twirling around and hits his bum on the... On the, the uh, yeah, we're only getting the, black stars now, not our typical uh, color, old color stars. <laughs> um, he's well, uh, scolded by the professor. Put on a warm coat. Be careful. You know, the ice is really dangerous, and he falls as well. <laughs> So Tintin puts on his nice... Now, this oh, is a panel... Oh, we cut to one of the greatest panels in the book. Yeah, yes, this was the sure. panel I put up online today, <laughs> uh, where Tintin's in his nice, big, fluffy uh, coat, yeah. and uh, and Snowy is dressed to the nines. Dressed to the nines. Not only does he wearing a coat, but he has a he has a uh, bonnet, I don't know how to describe it, and he has little booties on. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so great. And his pride, his little eyes, the little C's that his eyes make, because he's... Uh, he's, uh, here he says, I believe that I'm going to make quite a sensation. I don't know what it says in there. I'm going to cause a sensation. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it's very well done. Very well done. So good. Okay. Ugh, if only there wasn't Bullwinkle in this book, this book would be a masterclass. <laughs> so uh, we go to... Uh, but I have ha- to say, as a kid, I didn't recognize that at all as a, as a Jewish stereotype or no. as a... as a You know, I just read it as like a, no, a villainous character. No, you're looking at it with innocent, yeah. innocent eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Haddock, uh, is, damn adults ruining it for us. Yeah, and and perspective, uh, and uh, Haddock is talking to uh, is uh, one of his mates, I suppose, saying, uh, "Send this by radio." And the message is MS Aurora to President EFSR in sight of Iceland, putting into port at Akuri. Uh, Akuri. Why do you do these words? <laughs> You're better at this than I am. Sorry, where are they going into? In, in uh, putting into port in Akuri in. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's umlauts. Yeah, in the Asia Aya, Fjord. Fjord uh, yeah. for refueling. Sorry, I don't speak, I don't Fair speak uh, the language. Uh, all well on board. Uh, cut back as, to... As much as I enjoyed Bjork, I don't speak... Uh, I want to just boo Iceland. every time Bullwinkle shows up. <laughs> boo. Uh, Where's Bull, Rocky? Bullwinkle, yeah. Rocky doesn't want any piece of this. <laughs> uh, so uh, he's uh, Bull, Bullwinkle's getting the information on all everything that's going I just, on. I just want to say... Excellent, excellent, he says, that they're pulling into Iceland. Also, if you're a villain, you say excellent as yeah, well. that's right. And I just want to po- point out just one little more thing to sort of ameliorate this uh, the Jewishness of, of Bullwinkle. Winkle is his second in his right hand man is not a fellow you know hand wringing Jew he's you know he's just a white guy just an American guy he's just a nobody he's Johnson mm-hmm. you know so it's just America you know I don't think really it's not it's not an attempt to show the international banking conspiracy or whatever it's I'm just still a, gonna boo every time I see Bullwinkle <laughs> well of course he's the villain all right uh, Bullwinkle Bank to Smithers, uh, General Agent for the Golden Oil, uh, Reykjavik, Iceland. Circulate uh, following order immediately. All agents for Golden Oil in Iceland. Absolute prohibition against refueling polar vessel Aurora. <laughs> there, have that sentence secret code right away, Mr. Bullwinkle. All right, so now uh, the captain and Tintin come, come off the ship. And what I like about this sequence here is is the art, the art cheat here is uh, you could draw... An entire port with a bunch of ships parked. I don't know ships parked, docked, I should say, and uh, you know a lot of detail. Or just draw uh, the, uh, the I don't really call that thing the the thing that shows your speed on the boat. Yes. What is that called? Uh, the speeder teller. You speed were. the seamometer. 
And uh, so, yeah, they, they just shows that. And then we have them walking down the gangplank onto the deck. So very little boat drawing, which is good because, you know, you don't have it all, you don't have all day. Yeah. So you just show the prow of the boat in the next next panel with a little bit of uh, background. You know, it's very simple. Uh, so Haddock and uh, Tintin come off the boat and they need to get some oil, fuel oil. So they, they go into this to golden oil, which we, of course, know is under the control of Bullwinkle. <laughs> we come upon a guy that looks very much like Johnson. Maybe it's his brother, but uh, he uh, they have different last names, so they're, they must be twins. But uh, he has a little less chin than Johnson. He has a little less chin than, than uh, Johnson, and so uh, so then uh, the captain comes in and says, "Hey, we need some need to to uh, fill up with oil." And he goes, "Of you course, got you got it, you got yeah. it, yeah, yeah." That's and what then, we do here, fill you up with oil. <laughs> and then he says, "What uh, what's your ship's name?" And he says, "Well, we're the Aurora." Ooh, and he goes, ooh, ooh, ooh. Ooh, "Sweat poor baboo." And then, uh, well, I'm sorry, but uh, fortunately we don't have any oil here. I, I forgot to mention that. Uh, we, and so then uh, the captain can't believe it. They get into a big argument. Of course, then we cut to Tintin outside so we can... Because uh, RJ always seems to like to have arguments and fights off, off screen. Mm-hmm. And so they're fighting. You just see some lines showing argument. And the captain comes out saying, it's a shame. I tell you, a shame. I and got then, it's disgraceful. I tell you, disgraceful. Uh, same thing. And then, uh, and then uh, he... Uh, now, what's interesting here is he says, but this will fall, this will fall, one day, this will fall on your nose, is basically what he tells this guy. I got remember on your own head be it. Yes. Two different idioms. But the captain slams the door, and then the golden oil sign falls onto his head. Right. Now, I'd say, sue that company and get some oil. <laughs> it's oil from them. Yeah. But they don't have time for that. So now the captain is steaming mad. He's so mad, he's waving his hands around and slaps another captain right in the face. Right in the puss. Uh, and then this captain's mad. And in fact, he seems to be very like the captain. He calls, in mine, he calls him a semaphore. Yeah, a uh, seismic semaphore. Okay. <laughs> and here it's asbestos semaphore. Uh, and then uh, Tintin's my semaphore, me. And then they suddenly he starts going, uh, uh, fidgy, fidgy, fidgy. And then the other captain says, fidgy, fidgy, fidgy. And then in this, they go, I think in there they go, boola, boola, boola. I think they're saying it at the same time. I yeah. got boodle, boodle, boodle. And then, ay, ay, ay. <laughs> which uh, turns out to be, and also doing, it looks like a secret handshake. Yeah. Uh, and uh, boom, they know each other. They're both captains. Yeah. And w- what's great, for uh, what I like about this page is all the black between the two guys. <laughs> they're mm. both wearing their black. So it would be wonderful just to see a, a page of just the inks of this with all that, all that luscious I just black. like that Snowy's still dressed in his fancy outfit. Yes, yeah, not the booties, though. Mm. Doesn't have the booties. Uh, as it turns out, yes, Captain Chester and, and Captain Haddock know each other, that they sailed together for 20 years. And uh, and they're good buddies. And, of course, Tindon was is happy because he thought they were going to kill each other. And so then he discovers that Golden Oil does have... O- it does have fuel oil because the Sirius is going to fill up. And uh, now Captain's super mad. He is going to go back and give them a piece of his mind, which also involves his fists. And he's held back by Chester and Tintin, who tell him to calm down that this will do no good. Gang of thieves, black marketeers, <laughs> yes. monopolizers, uh, turncoats. Uh, I don't know what that one is. I'm out now. No, these are all hard words. And then... Uh, and then Captain Chester says, no, listen, there's no point in doing that. Do you know who is funding the, ex- the Peary expedition? No, none other than Bullwinkle Bank of, boo, of Sao Rico. Boo, <laughs> And uh, so then Haddock's still saying he doesn't seem to understand. And then he says, but listen, don't you know who owns Golden Oil? The Bullwinkle Bank of Sao Rico. Now do you understand? Oh, that makes Tintin, or sorry, Captain Haddock even matter. Now he wants to go and beat them up over that. So finally they calm him down. 
And of course, go have a drink. Go have a drink. A little bit of comedy now because we remember that Captain Haddock is now a spokesperson for the Society of Sober Sailors. And now Captain Captain Chester first orders three whiskeys. Yeah. Tintin says, oh, I'll take a, a mineral water. I got a tonic water, yep. And then uh, and then the Captain Chester says, oh my, I just remembered. You are the spokesperson for the Society of Sober Sailors. You, should, you will want to have mineral water as well, won't you? And of course the captain... So, so downhearted says yeah i will have a mineral water but when it comes he just takes a little bit of it a very small drop about an eighth of a glass and then he says you know for old time's sake i'll just have a little drop of uh a sousson yeah. a drop i got a, a thimble full a thimble full of uh whiskey in my glass and as it turns out the the thimble full is actually the entire glass with it dripping down the sides so much that's that's sufficient he says or that will do i guess and then well, they all drink, but Snowy seems upset. He's underneath the table. It seems yeah. upset he's not getting any. Because uh, Snowy enjoys a bit of alcohol. Yeah, he's he, a little... He likes, he likes his whiskey, that Snowy, but he's not getting any. He sure does. Uh, so what does it say on the water bottle for... Uh, tonic the... water. It says tonic water. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, mineral. Uh, yeah. And ah, that uh, tonic in these parts does you a power of good. You can describe the next Yeah, sentence. very, very happy. Uh, then tells him uh, an, an idea, and basically the idea is this. Uh, he's filling up his boat, the Sirius, but it's actually going through and filling up Haddock's boat. Ha-ha! Uh, duh, tricked! And uh, the the guy, the oil seller, uh, who thinks he's, uh, he's really, oh uh-huh, and watches uh, the Aurora sail away. Now full of fuel. Uh, through yeah. the power of friendship. But uh, and uh, Haddock gives him a little old goodbye, old man. Sorry <laughs> to be leaving you. <laughs> yes. Then we come to one of. The, I mean, we know that comedy comes in three, so this is the second stage of this. But it's kind of inexplicable because we have, we have uh, Haddock asking the cook what's for lunch. The cook tells him it's spaghetti, and then uh, we cut to uh, Snowy standing on a chair that is parked right in front of the oven. Oh, no, it's in front of the table. The, yeah. Oh, I get it now. Okay, that makes more sense. It's actually the, the counter. But yes, the, the chair's been pushed up to the counter. That makes more sense. Now I understand. And then he sees it. He wants to try it. He uh, goes to put his pot onto the pot. The chair gives way underneath him, and he and the chair and the pot all crash to the floor, and we get a great picture of Snowy entangled in spaghetti, running out of the galley, and uh, not very happy. No. Uh, all over his new, nice new outfit. <laughs> and nor is the chef very happy either. Yeah. And uh, Haddock's telling the chef, keep your sense of humor. Uh, but then he falls on a piece of spaghetti. And oh, now he just wants to get snowy as well. <laughs> Good stuff. Let's cut to a week later. Sure. Uh, we can tell we're now uh, getting somewhere because there are, uh, you know, there's ice in the water. Uh, Haddock says, this is where we are. We've crossed the 72nd parallel. Uh, you will confine your search to an area between 73 and 78 north and 8 and 13 west. You understand? Everyone understands. Uh, into a plane uh, goes Tintin, you know, and uh, and off they go, catapulted off. Uh, so uh, that goes, hoping they don't run into any trouble, but some time has passed. That's a cool device, isn't it, that the plane yeah. is catapulted to give it uh, enough momentum to start up and, and right because you wouldn't have enough uh room to uh to build up that momentum yeah makes sense yeah uh but something's peculiar the sky is quite clear but there's a great column of white vapor arising from one spot yeah danger 
Is it danger? So they inform uh, they inform Captain Haddock and Professor Fossil, who are gathered on the radio, interested in what's going to happen. And, and I guess Fossil, not danger. Yeah, you're right. Fossil is very excited. He says, uh, he says, now is it a is it you know just a, a single uh, you know column of of cloud that's that's rising? And they say yes. Are there clouds in the sky? They say no. They say you found the meteor. Get back here. And so then uh, you know, we'll get past the business that's going on. And so then. Tintin and the pilot, they start, they turn to fly back. They see a, a different plume of smoke in the distance. So they fly over there to see what it is. And then they circle over top of what turns out to be the Piri, the, uh, rival, sh- the rival ship that is actually farther ahead, mm-hmm. farther ahead than the, uh, the Aurora, the, the scientific ship. And now, interestingly here, there's a couple of interesting things. One is that if you look, uh, in the eighth panel down on the, the third tier, uh, if you look at the flag flying on the ship, you can see that it's a very small kind of rough drawing of the stars and stripes. So they didn't bother to change the flag there. They just left it uh, as the American flag. Okay, where's this? Uh, on the 8th, if you look at that little flag flying right. Oh, okay. There. Yeah, it's a small, but you can see it's the stars and stripes. It's kind of roughly Yeah, drawn. you're right. Yeah, okay. And uh, the other interesting thing is this ship was based on the uh, another British scientific research ship called the Discovery. Uh, which was the last wooden masted three, the last wooden three masted ship built in England. And it was built, uh, it was, it was, uh, took Scott and Shackleton on their first voyage to the, to the Antarctic. Mm. The one where they ended up getting trapped in the ice for two years. Mm-hmm. And I guess that's a success because they got away. They were able to dynamite uh, the ice around the ship and free themselves enough that they were able to return home. But, uh, but yeah, so that's what that was based on. So Tintin and the pilot fly back, and of course the captain is happy to see them. Mm-hmm. They uh, explain what they saw, and then the captain is so downheartened, he just feels like we might as well end it now. It's over. The game's at. Yeah, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. Here's the hopelessness. <laughs> we'll never win. The and, war will never end. But uh, the then Nazis will never leave. Tintin, Tintin says, "We'll never find chocolates in the shop again." I agree with you, Captain. But uh, you know, I'm almost frozen to death. Uh, do you think I could use a little whiskey? Oh, some whiskey, you say? Well, I, I might have a little bit of whiskey in the. Here, would you drink with me? I guess I could drink with you. Is that right? Because here he goes. Uh, you, you want whiskey? He's really surprised. I got some whiskey. You, yeah. or I'll see if there is any. <laughs> You'll have a glass with us, won't you, Captain? You bet I will. Bump right down. <laughs> On second thought, says Tintin, I really do think the game is up. It'd be far better to just give up the struggle. Yes. Give up the struggle? Never. Blistering barnacles. This is no moment to throw up the sponge. Just I like that expression. Yeah. Uh, just when victory is in sight, thundering typhoons. And uh, he's in. He's uh, full on in. We're going to go for it. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good. Nothing like a little courage from the bottle. Mm-hmm. So they sail on. They begin to catch up to the Perry. They can actually sail faster than it, as Tintin explains. It's not just uh, It's not just that you know they're hoping to catch it, but that they, their ship is more powerful because the Perry is an older ship. It's a three-masted schooner. It's not, a, it's not an efficient ship. Although the Aurora wasn't all that efficient either because... No, no, it was the Discovery wasn't that efficient because it was built... Uh, as an icebreaker, it had a really uh, kind of unstable hull. So when you're sailing in the open ocean, it was a really tricky. But anyway, so... It looks like they're going to catch up, but then they get a message. It's an SOS call. Yeah. A ship's in danger. Oh, dear. They could make... Uh, they could beat this ship. Yeah. Or they could go and rescue uh, the other ship. Yes. Human lives are at stake. Yes. The vote is there. What are they going to do? Uh, and uh, and the captain is, yes, 
you know, we're gonna we're gonna save them. You know, the professor says yes, the captain says yes, and Tin Tintin says bravo. <laughs> That's exactly what we're gonna do. They turn around, go, and uh, now we're gonna have a little bit more snowy business. Yeah, this is the third third time's a charm. Mm-hmm. Our third time with Snowy going to the gallery. He's had sausages. Yeah. He's had spaghetti all over his body. Yeah. Now he's gonna go in there and he smells something. It smells pretty good. Yeah. Only the chef says, "Sapristi." Or snakes, whatever he says. I got. I've forgotten to shut that confounded door again. <laughs> he slams the door right in poor Snowy's nose. You know what? He's got that coming. He does eating That's all those enough. sausages and yeah. ruining a good spaghetti dinner. And uh, you know, wearing his fancy outfit like he's a big shot. <laughs> yeah, to heck with that. So uh, they're on their way to uh, to 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 rescue the ship. Uh, you know, uh, but Tintin oh. is still kind of suspicious because mm-hmm. we've seen some fishy stuff happen: dynamite, an attempt at ramming the ship. Uh, not being able to get oil. Not being able to get oil. So we know that there's sabotage afoot. So he decides to do some research. They have the first few letters of the name of the ship, V-I-L. Yep. So they send out uh, telegrams to all the messages to all the other shipping companies, asking, explaining to them what's happening and what ship it might be. And so the next morning, they get all these telegrams back. Yeah. Explaining that none of these ships are in any danger. By the way, do you mind all the paper being used here? Does this bother you? No, it's fine. It's small sheets right. paper. Fair enough. And then, uh, and then, uh, it's, just the, it's just the wastefulness of it, you know. There's a person yeah. who uses paper. I use a lot of paper, but that's that seemed excessive. Um, so then they get, but suddenly they get one message from one shipping company that tells them there's a ship called the Ville Naranda that is trouble, and it's uh, John Kingsby is I guess the ship owner, and the ship is in distress at the coordinates that the uh, Aurora is sailing to. So, Tintin starts looking through a directory. The captain is very amused. He says, uh, what are you doing? Are you looking for the, the tonnage of the uh, Vilnaranda? Or the age of the captain? What more do you need to know? And he says, just this, Captain. The Vilnaranda does not exist. Bum, bum, bum. It's a fake SOS. The captain is even more furious. Yeah, that could, no, no captain would do that. Yes. That's beyond the pale. Exactly. You would never fake. Yeah, it's basically... A crying wolf at sea, yeah, and putting other people into danger yeah. by making no them. No captain would do that, yeah, you know. But what about the expedition sponsors? Blistering blue barnacles again, yes. <laughs> Furious, and off they go, hard to starboard, off you are. You know, uh, we're going after the uh, Peary again. Increase the speed, off they go. Uh, Tintin falls asleep, uh, wakes up again. Another little sleep there, you know. Is it all a dream, Dave? Yes, is exactly. it all a dream? Yeah, is he dreaming this part of the story? I don't know. It seems like the kind of outfit Snowy would wear in a dream. <laughs> in, a, in a nightmare. Yeah. Snowy tries to make it down the steep ladder, no dice, lands on his poor little face. Yeah. Yeah, t- he's getting nothing in the butt this time, but he's getting it all in the mush. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Lamp posts, floors, yep. doors. Now, once again, Tintin trying to get some sleep. Boy, your theory about this being a dream is interesting. Uh, he uh, tries to go to sleep. No, no dice. Rat-a-tat-tat, right at the door. Open up, it's me. You know, we've, uh, it's a signal we've intercepted from the Peary. Uh, Peary to Bullwinkle. Uh, success, a meteorite in sight. And we're back to depression. Yes. They've beaten us, we're finished. It's all over. Captain Soap said he sits on Snowy. Yeah, who's out of his outfit at this point. He's taken off the, uh, the gear. And he's yeah. back to being himself. He's back to Snowy. Yeah. I think, uh, I think possibly the captain, yeah, the captain might have got bitten on the butt. He's got some stars coming out of his butt, so that's a possibility. Uh, <laughs> Tintin gets dressed again. Uh, Snowy really is upset about this, wants to know about the sleep. Nope, no sleep. 
uh, and uh, Tintin tells Snowy, stay here until I get back. Off goes uh, Tintin in, in the plane. And uh, and Snowy just turns into a full-on dog. Yeah, yeah. He can't, he's, he cannot be uh, calmed down. He's, he's uh, inconsolable. Now, here's a, here's a weird theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, without it's Tintin... Snowy's dream. Well, here's the thing. Without Tintin, Snowy is just a dog. Yeah. He's gone, and he just uh, he just starts uh, moaning, complaining. They give him all sorts of food, bones, other food. No dice, still crying, can't take it. Uh, he is uh, he is just despondent. Suddenly he gets excited. In- inconsolable. Yep, spots something. It's Tintin. He's coming back because uh, he forgot the flag. Uh, Snowy takes this opportunity to jump uh, on board onto the wing. Tintin does not spot him. And off the plane goes with Snowy on the wing. Scary. It is scary. Poor little Snowy. I'm glad they took off his ridiculous outfit because it makes it more dramatic. <laughs> also, it's nice that they had a collar on him uh, with a leash because you see that flapping down in the wind. Yeah. Tintin spots him. Uh, does a little. Well, wind. no, no. The captain. The yeah. captain runs down and, and uh, radios. So that's yeah. good, quick thinking on the captain's part. He races down to the radio, radios to Tintin, who then has to make a daring rescue. <clears throat> climbs out onto the wing, keeping his hand on the on the sill of the canopy. Yeah. And then he, or of the cockpit, I should say, and then he uh, climbs back inside. And Snowy is a little dizzy, a little worse for wear, but safe and wrapped in a nice red blanket. Yeah, he's fine. They get near the uh, the meteor. They spot. They're spotting it. Uh, it looks like the Peary has beaten them to it, though. Uh, and the captain ugh, is so upset. Uh, tell me, I suppose the flag is already their flag is already flying from the top of the meteorite. Their flag? Wait, no, I can't see a flag. It's not too late. Still yeah. hope. The the airplane racing towards the meteorite. The ship. Racing towards the meteorite. Yeah, there it is, says the Peary. The meteorite is ours. But they spot the plane. Well, there's no way the the, the plane can land in time. There's yeah. absolutely no way. Boom! Who's coming out of the plane to parachute? Tintin with the flag. Sure, and we see we see the uh, Saurican flag as well. That was once an American flag. Yeah. Converted to the uh, flag of Saurico. There you the are. Second, but small, little known Portuguese-speaking country in Central America. <laughs> So, Tintin lands, uh, does, uh, through a dramatic, uh, you know... Uh, and apparently quite a tax haven. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, Tintin does, long story short, uh, land on the meteorite uh, after uh, much shenanigans. Climbs up to the top and plunges the flag in, claiming it. It's great, though. I like the, the fact that it takes three days mm-hmm. for, well, even more than that, for the flag. So, I mean, he, you know, when the, when the parachute releases, he does almost the same thing he did in... Uh, in um, King Autocar Scepter, where in that case he he let go of the parachute. In this case, he lets almost loses the flag. Yeah, he's able to catch it on his foot and hug it again. And then as he comes down, he misses the uh, he misses the the edge of the the, the edge of the cliff. So, so unfortunately, his parachute snags onto the cliff face. So he climbs up that, still carrying the flag. Then he tries to unwrap it. He can't. The boat is right right near the shore. He's chewing his way through the ropes. To, uh, to unwrap the flag. And then he has it in just as the ship hits land. It throws the other guy out of the ship with, with his flag. Wrong way down. Yeah. Victory. Our flag is flying over the meteorite. Victory, everyone on Tintin's boat. The Aurora cheers. Uh, so the plane is landed near the uh, meteorite. Snowy jumps in the water to, uh, to get to Tintin. And he starts screaming. And, uh, you know, yeah. th- he thinks he must have been uh, banged up on a rock goes into the water he starts screaming it is boiling hot water yeah around yeah. the meteor <laughs> makes sense also very uh dreamlike 
that. There's a lot of, like, earlier on, everyone was hot and melting yeah. and boiling. Now the water around this thing is boiling. Yeah, this section is a return to the dreamlike narrative of the of the first part of it. Oh, it's very dreamlike from this point on. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Tintin has to stay there. Uh, and he has some supplies. Um, not much. And uh, the plane goes and will be uh, back by morning. Off, off it goes, leaving Tintin and Snowy on this mysterious meteorite. Yeah. And so... But what do you do when you're waiting? Well, you have some have some lunch. Of course. So he sits down with his lunchbox and his thermos and... Uh, An apple, ships biscuits, and water. Yeah. He talks about the... Uh, and of course, we should... We have to remember, because people have been reading this for over a year now, uh, that Philippolis had, you know, said that the judgment was upon them, that we must repent. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sinton's remembering that. So funny. Ha ha ha. What a nightmare. And then uh, the giant spider and all. Oh, that... Sure scared me. Opens the the lunchbox and a spider crawls out. Uh huh. He tries to crush it, but the spider escapes into the rocks. And then uh says, Well, I forget about that. He starts eating going back to what what looks like he's eating a it looks like a Pop Tart to me, but I doubt it is a Pop Tart since I don't know yeah, when they're invented. A, just a biscuit. I guess it's a biscuit. Yep. Uh, like... Hearing the dong dong dong, which was the sound that was made in his dream. He's remembering all the things from his dream. Yeah. The spider, uh the the, the, the gong. Uh, but, oh, no, what an ass I am. It's the bell on the Peary. <laughs> I suppose it's their supper time, too. Well, back to eating. Uh, Snowy has finished his uh, his food already. Yep. Uh, and exploring the island. Uh, oh, Tintin spots a maggot in his apple, tosses it over his shoulder, lands on poor little Snowy's head. His first head injury? Oh, no, his head, no, many head injuries. Many head injuries. Oh, it's the tail injuries that we haven't seen. All right, listen, it's time now for another sleep. Yeah, is it a sleep? Or is it? Yeah, we don't know. Oh, man, you're making me scared. <laughs> it's getting dark out now. I, I just know. think it's interesting that uh, Herge uses sleep and that sort of dreamscape yeah. to, to in the, throughout the story. Not just the beginning, but throughout the story as well. And it's, every time every time uh, he tries to go to sleep, a noise awakens mm-hmm. him. And in this case, it's rat-a-tat-tat, dong-dong-dong. In this case, boom, here's yeah. an explosion. Goes and looks. What is it? Can't, uh, can't spot nothing. Oh, just spot a little bit of a, a mushroom. That's nice. Uh, Snowy says, oh, well, oh, no, he thinks it's an egg, first of all. Yeah. Great snakes. Who could have laid that? And, and Snowy doesn't care. Let's scramble it. But, wait, it's getting bigger. No, it's not an egg. It's a mushroom. Bigger. Bigger. And we see it's the mushroom from the cover of the book. Boom! Explodes. Yeah. And others are doing this around him, too. Very surreal. Very, um, a very Lewis Carroll here. You know, mushrooms growing and then, uh, turning into clouds. Clouds of explosion. Uh, but then things seem to calm down. Interesting. Uh, looks looks over. Uh, gets a little tap on the shoulder. What is it? Well, it's an apple tree. It's growing. It's growing, growing bigger. Must uh, must have been the quarry threw away yesterday. This this uh, this uh, meteor is causing things to grow in a crazy way. Uh, so uh, Snowy says he's gonna uh, keep his eye open. Sees a gigantic butterfly. Yeah. And uh, realizes that must have been the maggot that was in the apple. Yeah. So the curious question to ask here is if. If the trees are growing larger, and the uh, the maggots growing larger, how come Tintin and Snowy don't expand? Is it because they're not growing on the island? Mm-hmm. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah. Because because we'll see another creature that gets really large, and it's it didn't come from the island, and it it expanded without like becoming part of the island, without growing on the island, mm-hmm. and suddenly it gets bigger. Maybe it only works on small things and makes them bigger. Okay. But if you're already uh, big size, it uh, won't make you a giant. Sure. That'd be weird. Because trees made. are so small. True. Well, here's the other. But it's a seed, so yeah, it's changing. Let me let me throw this and blow your mind, Dave. Blew my mind. You're assuming here, yeah, 
that these things are getting big. Yeah. Perhaps Snowy and Tintin, Tintin. Alice in Wonderland style, yeah. are getting small. Okay. That's possible, too. Or, here's the other other possibility. Mm-hmm. Tintin is sleeping. Could very well be. Apples are falling from the trees. Giant apples knocking Snowy on the head. Uh, running from these giant apples like it was a yellow submarine cartoon. Uh, waves are crashing into... Wait, there's a huge wave that's uh, that's crashing now into the thing. Is it a huge wave or is it a regular size wave and they're both tiny? Who knows? Do you know? You don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but they climb up uh, the meteor uh, to uh, to be a little safer. Now, here's the thing. What is, as you say, what is the only thing we haven't seen grow bigger so far? What has been teased since the very beginning of this story? Yeah. What is filling all the children with dread as they read this story? Screaming at Tintin, yeah. watch out for the... Here's the giant spider. Yeah, and a great sequence too, because when, if you think about it, you're reading it in the Daily Soir, mm-hmm. in the Le Soir, uh, every day. Uh, you come to that page, you come to, you know, uh, Tintin sees a plane, he's so excited, he's dancing, he's singing a little song. Uh about the Avignon Bridge in mine. Uh, I just got, oh, what a beautiful morning. Okay. Oh, what a beautiful day. Uh, behind him, the spider is standing there. And I like how the little lines of excitement are kind of coming off the spider. Notice the spider. It's right there. But then when you cut to the next day, there's three panels with no spider in them. Yeah. Just Tintin hopping around. Yeah, it's creepy. And so you you, you end up with a, a space of a day where you don't know what's going on with the spider before you get to it. here's the thing. I got a friend who's visiting me now from Australia, and he described the scariest thing about spiders. And it's not the scariest thing. It's like when you see a big spider on the wall, it's not the scariest thing. Yeah. The scariest thing is when you turn away for a second, turn back, and the spider's gone. (laughs) And so to the kids reading this, they know the spider's there. Yeah. Where's the spider at? Yeah, where's the spider at? Yeah. Where exactly is it? Well, uh, next day, hi, uh, here's your paper. Yeah. Uh, There's the spider. Yeah. Crumbs, what a monster. Uh, tries to grab a stone, uh, but it doesn't budge. Uh, throws throws it at the spider. No dice. Now he's on the run from the spider. Uh, another earthquake. Spider's coming at him. Uh, runs by the tree. And luckily, uh, one of the apples falls down and uh, crushes the spider. This does seem very, very dreamlike, doesn't yeah. it? Well, then he gets conked on the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Tintin's first. He's so happy. He's like, you know, oh, well, that... He says... I don't know, it's a close escape or narrow escape. And then he says, uh, and here he says, hooray for the, what is it? hooray for that, uh, something for the brave pommier, which I assume is, is a, as a person who has a, ten, like an orchard, a dense orchard, the apple orchards. I've got, whew, that was close. Thank goodness for this apple tree. Yeah. He oh, maybe no- that pommier must be apple tree. Okay. Yeah. I just, he gets knocked unconscious. Right. And then we get, uh, Snowy going, wake up, wake up. Uh, again, he's like, he's out. Yeah. So the idea of him being asleep. Uh, Snowy barking at him to uh, try and uh, wake him up. You know, uh, water is coming. Uh, finally, he just ends up uh, biting him on the butt. Yeah. Yeah. You know, T- uh, Tintin's the one who ends up getting a butt injury this time. Yes. Tables have turned. If Hergé was being really clever, uh, just to blow our minds, he would have removed the tree and all the apples yeah, from, from it. That's what it kind of looks like. Yeah. But he will shortly because, uh, you know, the, the plane is landing. And the uh, the meteor is uh, tipping over, and yeah. uh, Tintin runs up to the top, uh, grabbing the flag, the highest uh, the highest point. Plane comes down to rescue him, uh, gets thrown a rope, you know, rescues Snowy, uh, makes a jump for it, takes it, grabs the grabs the flag, uses that, uh, and uh, does get rescued. But, 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 what an idiot I am! He says. Has to go swim back. Now, I yeah. guess the water isn't boiling at this point anymore around it. Well, I guess the, the, enough of it has sunk down into the water that it's uh, 
that there's water, you know, that the, the uh, there's been enough uh, a- atom ex- exchange of atoms that the heat is dissipated. Oh, thank you, Mr. Science. Hey, no problem. As uh, and if this was the Tintin world, that would make you crazy. <laughs> that's right. That's why or I have, at least eccentric. That's why I have elaborate hair and a and a big mustache. So he grabs a lump of the meteorite, uh, takes that back with him. Uh, but it looks like the waves get him. No sign of Tintin. But there he is. He's hanging just, on. Just want to break in Please. say, loving all these waves. Sure you are. So well drawn. I mean, look at that. The foam and everything. Ugh. Yep. He's Gosh. hanging on with the lump of uh, phoslite. I guess that's what we're calling it We'll now. call it phoslite, yeah. Yeah. With the flag, too. Uh, a very worried um, uh, Haddock is, is, is waiting uh, with his headphones on uh, while, uh, you know, the professor uh, paces. They're found all as well. Things yeah. are good. Yeah. Uh, Tintin climbs uh, climbs off the uh, uh, the wing of the ship, but brought a mushroom with him. Grows kaboom, <coughs> pardon me, and everyone is uh, is stunned on the ship. Yeah. Then, yeah, exposition time. Oh, so much exposition! I think we can pretty much skip it unless you want to really wrap it Let's up. Let's just say this: uh, Mr. Bullwinkle uh, is uh, listening to the news about everything that happened. Not happy with the news. Yeah. Uh, then, then learning basically he's going to be brought to justice. Yeah, and it's a great sh- sh- uh, drawing of him being scared. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Meh. Wow. Meh. Right. The penguin. All right. Now we're back on the boat. Have you noticed? Uh, have you noticed, as the professor to Tintin, how preoccupied the captain has been lately? Tintin's worried. Uh, yeah, let's find out what the trouble is. Is anything the matter? Uh, land ho, says uh, the captain. Thundering typhoons land. About time, too. Why? Were we about to run out of fuel oil? Take it away, Dave. Final final uh, line from Haddock. <laughs> he, says, he says, worse than that, running out of, or out of whiskey. So Boom. And then we get the classic French fin end. A nice shot of the uh, Aurora sailing off. Yeah, I got we got Tintin doing a nice reaction shot of what? Yeah, yeah, with his spinning hair. Well, how does it, yours? Let's see the last page. Isn't there a? There we go. Oh yeah, with the ship. The end. The end. Nice. Nice. Yeah, this is the most. We did it. This is the most surreal one so far. Yeah, I don't. We will not experience another story like this. I think this was incredibly personal in 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 how it was done. I think. I think Hergé was doing, you know, if, if not exactly a, about the war, at least something that reflected pe- people's state of mind at that time. I mean, Hergé was better than most, or better off than most. He he had money coming from other places. He had, uh, his stories were being published in Portugal. He had the editor in Portugal, or his publisher in Portugal, put money aside for him, put money in the bank for him, and buy him supplies there, mm-hmm. and to send him food in lieu of cash. And so he was getting this stream of of goodies coming out of Portugal. He also had them send stuff to his brother Paul, who was in was in a POW camp in Germany. And so it, he would send food via Portugal, would go through the Red Cross to his brother as well. So you know he was better off than many people, but he was still suffering under the the effects of having people you know uh, staring over your shoulder twenty four hours a day, seven days a week, yeah. you know, living in this place that's no longer no longer your own. I mean. He had to start uh, publishing uh, Land of the Soviets in a small uh, small periodical that run by Brittany separates, separatists just because uh, the Nazis favored them. And so, you know, they made it, uh, they made, they made him do that, you know, like, and he had no choice. He couldn't say no. He couldn't say anything about that. He had his own censors. There's two guys, Lieutenant Kurowski and Captain Karduk from the propaganda of Tailang, who oversaw not just the content of Le Soir, but also Hergé's publications with Casterman. It was them who objected to the presence of the Heinkels in King Ottokar's scepter. 
and told him not to have the name Heinkel on them. And it was a, it was a kind of a poke in their nose that Hergé changed it to Messerschmitt rather than Heinkel's yeah. and made it even more obvious, you know. But in other ways, you know, despite little small gestures like that, he didn't want to make waves. You know, there was a very popular weekly called Junior, which published American uh, newspaper cartoons. Well, because it published new- American newspaper cartoons, it was shut down. Uh, the journal De Mickey also ended up getting closed down. It could publish uh, in a kind of intermittent fashion because of the uh, character characterization of the Huns in Prince Valiant. So their their uh, publication was 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 stopped. Wow. And you know, it's it was wasn't like a great time to be creative, even though it was like a majorly creative time for him. Because for whatever reason, artists often do their best work in times of terrible stress times, and yeah. terrible times. Yeah. And so we see a real, because basically there's nothing else for you to do. You can't go on vacation. Yeah. You can't go away. There's no, nothing, nothing doing at home, you know, so you might as well be creative and, and get stuff done. So wh- while that was happening, uh, um, Hergé and um, uh, he not only, he wanted um, Casterman to, to sort of take over merchandising for him and start pushing postcards and, Tintin sheets and all the rest of that stuff into stores. Casterman wasn't that interested in that. They just want, they're a publishing company and that's what they wanted to be. They didn't want to have to start worrying about other kinds of stores, how to get into stationer's stops and toy stores and stuff like that. So Hergé hired an agent, a guy named Bernard Terry, who uh, was going to do that for him. Only Terry wanted 40% of the cut, which Hergé wasn't very happy with. So he said, okay, I'll agree to that for now. He didn't say for now to him, but I'll agree to that. Only this only counts for stuff that was done in the past, not for future drawings. And then uh, he was not happy. He didn't think Terry was doing a very good job, but he didn't want to make waves. He just kind of let him, you know, he, he was busy enough. He didn't want to worry about it because, you know, once he started, once he did the shooting star in color, well, then Casterman's like, well, this is great. Let's do all the old books in color too. So let's get going on those. So get cracking and start, we'll get those Yikes. books then as well. So uh, Hergé had to start looking for, uh, for help. He just realized that he couldn't do it all on his own. So he ended up hiring uh, a, a lady named Alice DeVoe and she became kind of his assistant. So she helped him repurpose uh, the older books and stuff like that because even with the Toile Mysterieuse, as we said at the beginning, even those ones had to have p- panels cut up and then pasted down and then the, the kind of expanded scenes drawn around those drawn panels. And so, you know, they would take stuff that was already already drawn. They didn't want to redraw everything, right. but they would add to those drawings, whether they were stretching them or making them longer to add a little bit more detail to them to make them fill the 62-page uh, limit. And so uh, DeVoe was with him. Uh, she, he liked her. I mean, you know, he took her on first as a trial, and then eventually he, he gave her a raise and, and hired her permanently. And she worked on Not Just a Shooting Star, which was the first Tintin book to get colored, but... And just a, Hergé wasn't entirely happy with the coloring job that they did. The version that we have was actually recolored later on in the 50s, mm-hmm. just because he was so unhappy with the coloring job. Uh, she worked on the Black Island, the second version of the Black Island, the, the first colored version of it, but the sec, you know, right. there was a third version that, again. Yeah. Uh, the Broken Ear and the Crab with the Golden Claws. And then, so she was there up until 43, and then she left because she was pregnant. But even though he liked her quite a bit, he really wanted to have an artist that was equal to him in skill, that someone who could contribute to Tintin, not just be like an assistant to help color in blacks and, yeah. and draw draw panel borders and stuff like that. He wanted someone who would be a collaborator. A full contributor. Yeah. yeah. And so he, I remember we talked about uh, the play, uh, The Mystery of the Blue Diamond, mm-hmm. and 
Tintin in India, I guess it was also called. Uh, and so and Hergé met Edgar P. Jacobs at that, and he really admired his art. And so he offered Jacobs a position as his assistant. And, he, you know, and he said, you'll be on salary, but eventually I'd like to move you on to, to getting a percentage, a royalty percentage. And Jacobs was interested, but he had just started his own comic strip. So he said, well, let's see where this goes. And, you know, I will, uh, I'll think about it, you know. So it wasn't a definite no. It was just kind of a, let's see what happens here. And so Hergé so wanted to work with him, though, that he was willing to wait. So that was fine. And the other thing that kind of happened around this time, that he was a busy guy, but and he liked to be busy, is he did a second play with Jack van Melkebeek called, uh, well, same place, same uh, theater to gallery. Um, it was called The Disappearance of Mr. Bullock. Unfortunately, like the first play, the scripts for this play this is miss, are missing as well. Like No mm. one knows what happened in it. This time... Tintin was played by a, a male actor rather than a female like the first play, a guy named Roland Neves. And uh, it had the same crew and everything. And in this one, it uh, featured another in a long line of nutty professors, <laughs> this time Professor Dory Ford. Uh, Dory Ford was one of Haddock's favorite insults, so it's kind of kind of funny how these things go round and round. And so, yeah, that was uh, basically uh, Hergé's 1940, his year of doing uh, Le, Le Trois Mysterieuses. Nice. All right. Uh, thank you very much for, uh, for, for joining us on our journey through this. Maybe we all dreamt it. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, I am a little bit creeped out right now. With, uh, I never know exactly what the stories are about till like later you go, oh, you know, that was all about this. What? All right. Yeah. You've, you've, you've found some really good subtext there. So, but let us know what you think. Do you think, uh, do you think, uh, there was dreamlike elements? Was it all a dream? Yeah. Uh, our website is sneakydragon.com. That is also the name of our other podcast. If you want to hear our voices, but not talking about Tintin, we talk about other things on that podcast, but that's where our message boards are. So so SneakyDragon.com, please go on there and uh, let us know uh, what you thought of the episode. We'll also be happy to hear from you on our Facebook page, uh, Totally Tintin. Yeah. Uh, we are Sneaky underscore Dragon on Twitter, and we are SneakyD at SneakyDragon.com uh, via the email. Any of those, we love hearing from you. And those of you that have been writing on our message boards, thank you so much. Those of you who have been sending drawings of us. Yes. Uh, that as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for that. Yeah. Uh, we couldn't be happier about that. Uh, it feels bad to ask you for one more favor, but hey, we're going to. Uh, if you have a chance to give us a review on iTunes, that helps people to find out about the podcast. So if you just uh, give us a couple of words on there, that would really be appreciated. And uh, is there anything else that you want to say? Yeah, I just want to add just one last thing, which sure, is that, please. hey, you're a Tintin fan. If you're a Beatles fan, we also did the same thing with the Beatles as we're doing with Tintin. We went chronologically through all the albums. The show is called Completely Beatles, and you can also find that on iTunes. Right. We spell Completely Beatles with an A in the middle of Completely. Just like All the, of the Beatles. Yeah, just like the, like the uh, documentary about the Beatles, the Complete Beatles, we, right. we, went, we went there. It makes it a little harder to find when we do a search. Yeah, you'll find it. But it makes you actually find it when you look for it proper, so yeah. there you are. But yeah, please uh, check that out as well. And the next time we will be meeting with you, we're going to be uh, looking at The Secret of the Unicorn. So if you want to pick that, if you don't have that book at the ready, uh, go to your local bookstore, your local library, or wherever you find books, maybe in the middle of the woods. Yeah, I've got to go buy it because I cannot find my copy at home. Oh, I've got to buy it as well. <laughs> well, Dave and I are going to go to the bookstore right now. <laughs> and race uh, the thank, final copy. Thank you so much for uh, listening. I've been Ian Boothby. I've been David Dedrick. Thank you for your kind attention. Bye, everyone. <laughs>